Part Five, Chapter One of Anna Karenina. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. Part Five, Chapter One. The Princess Sherbatskaya found it would not be possible to have the wedding before Lent which would come in five weeks, because the trousseau would not be half done, but she could not help agreeing with Levin that after Lent it might be too late, as an old aunt of the prince's was very ill and liable to die, and then mourning would still further postpone it. So having decided to divide the trousseau into two parts, one large, the other small, the princess agreed to have the wedding before Lent. She decided that she would prepare the smaller part of the trousseau at once, and send the larger part afterward, and she was very indignant with Levin, because he would not answer her seriously whether this would suit him or not. This arrangement was all the more convenient, because the young couple intended to set out for the country immediately after the ceremony, and would not need the larger part of the things. Levin continued in the same condition of lunacy, in which it seemed to him that he and his happiness constituted the chief and only aim of creation and that it was wholly unnecessary for him to think or to bother himself about anything, but that his friends would arrange everything for him. He did not even make any plans or arrangements for his coming life, but left others to decide for him, knowing all would be admirable. His brother, Sergey Ivanovitch, Stepan Arkadyevitch, and the princess ruled him absolutely. He was satisfied to accept whatever they proposed. His brother borrowed the money that he needed, the princess advised him to leave Moscow after the wedding. Stepan Arkadyevitch advised him to go abroad. He consented to everything. "'Make whatever plans you please,' he thought. "'I am happy, and whatever you may decide on, my joy will be neither greater nor less.' But when he told Kitty of Stepan Arkadyevitch's suggestion about going abroad, he was surprised to see that she did not approve of it, and that she had her own very decided plans for the future." She knew that Levin's heart was at home in his work, and although she neither understood his affairs, nor tried to understand them, still, they seemed to her very important. As their home would be in the country, she did not wish to go abroad, where they were not going to live, but insisted on settling down in the country where their home was to be. This very firm determination surprised Levin, but as it seemed to him all right, he begged Stepan Arkadyevitch, who had excellent taste, to go to Pokrovsky and take charge of the improvements in his house. It seemed to him that that belonged to his friend's province. "'By the way,' said Stepan Arkadyevitch one day, after his return from the country, where he had arranged everything for the young couple's reception, "'have you your certificate of confession?' "'No.' "'Why?' "'You can't be married without it.' "'Ay, ay, ay,' cried Levin. "'But it is nine years since I have been to confession. I hadn't even thought of it.' "'That is good,' said Stepan Arkadyevitch, laughing. "'And you call me a nihilist. "'But that can't be allowed to go on. "'You must prepare for the sacrament.' "'When? "'There are only four days more.' Stepan Arkadyevitch arranged this matter also, and Levin prepared for his devotions. For Levin, as for any man who is an unbeliever, yet respects the faith of others, it was very hard to attend and participate in all religious ceremonies. Now in his tender and sentimental frame of mind— 
the necessity of dissimulating was not only odious to him, it was well-nigh impossible. Now, he would be obliged either to lie or to mock at sacred things, at a time when his heart was bursting, when he felt at the height of bliss. He felt that he could do neither. But in spite of all his efforts to persuade Stefan Arkadyevitch that there must be some other way of obtaining a certificate without being forced to confess, Stefan Arkadyevitch declared that it was impossible. "'Yes, but what harm will it do you? Only two days. And the priest is a capital, bright little old man. He will pull this tooth for you without your knowing it.' During the first mass that he attended, Levin did his best to recall the strong religious impressions of his youth, when he was between sixteen and seventeen years old. But he found that this was perfectly impossible. He then tried to look on religious forms as an ancient custom, without any real meaning, something like the habit of making calls. This also, he felt, that he could never do. Like most of his contemporaries, Levin was completely undecided in regard to his religious views. He could not believe. At the same time, he was not firmly convinced that all these things were unreasonable, and therefore not being in a condition to believe in the efficacy of what he was doing, or to look on it with utter indifference as only an empty formality, he experienced a sense of pain and annoyance during the time allotted to his devotions. His conscience cried out that to do what he himself did not understand was false and wicked. During the time of the service, he listened to the prayers, striving to attribute to them some significance which should not be in too open contradiction with his convictions. But finding that he could not understand them, he was compelled to criticize them. He tried not to listen, but occupied himself with his thoughts, with the observations and recollections that arose in his mind with extraordinary vividness during the solemn night office in the church. He stayed through Mass, Vespers, and evening prayers, and on the next morning he rose earlier than usual, and came at eight o'clock, without having eaten anything, to morning prayers and confession. There was no one in the church, except a mendicant soldier, two old women, and the officiating priests. A young deacon with a long, thin back clearly defined in two halves, beneath his short cassock, came to meet him, and going to a little table near the wall, began to read prayers. Levin, hearing him repeat in a hurried, monotonous tone, clipping his words, the words, Lord have mercy upon us, felt that his thought was locked up and sealed, and that to touch it, and stir it now, was out of the question, since, if he did, confusion would ensue. Therefore he stood behind the deacon, not listening, and not trying to fathom what he said, but thinking his own thoughts. What a wonderful amount of expression there is about her hands, he thought, recalling the evening before, which he had spent with Kitty at the table in one corner of the drawing-room. There had not been much to talk about, as was usually the case at this time. She had rested her hand on the table, opening and shutting it, and laughing as she made this motion. He remembered how he had kissed this hand, and then examined the lines that crossed the pink palm. "'Have mercy on us again,' thought Levin, making the sign of the cross, and bowing while he noticed the deacon's supple movements, as he prostrated himself in front of him. Then she took my hand, and in turn examined it. "'You have a famous hand,' she said to me. He looked at his own hand, and then at the deacon's, with its stubbed fingers. "'Yes. Now it will soon be over.' "'No. He is beginning another prayer.' "'Yes. He is bowing to the ground. 
that always comes just before the end. The deacon took the three-ruble note, discreetly slipped into his hand, under his rough, shaggy cuff, and promised to register Levin's name. Then, quickly clacking in his new boots across the flagstones of the empty church, he went to the altar. In a moment he looked out and beckoned to Levin. The thought till that moment locked up in Levin's brain began to stir, but he made haste to bring it to order. "'It will be arranged somehow,' he said to himself, and went toward the ambo. He mounted several steps, turned to the right, and saw the priest, a little old man, whose thin beard was almost white, with kindly but rather weary eyes, standing near the reading-desk, turning over the leaves of a missal. After a slight bow to Levin, he began to read the prayers. Having finished them, he kneeled and faced Levin. "'Christ is here, invisible, though, to hear your confession,' he said, pointing to the crucifix. "'Do you believe all that the Holy Apostolic Church teaches us?' he continued, turning his eyes from Levin's face and crossing his hand under his stole. "'I have doubted. I still doubt everything,' said Levin, in a voice which sounded disagreeable to his own ears, and he was silent. The priest waited a few moments to see if he would say anything more, then closed his eyes, and speaking rapidly, with a Vladimirsky accent, he said, To doubt is characteristic of human weakness. We must pray the Lord Almighty to strengthen you. What are your principal sins? The priest spoke without the least interruption, and as if he were afraid of losing time. My principal sin is doubt. I doubt everything, and I am generally doubting. To doubt is a characteristic of human weakness, said the priest, using the same words. What do you doubt, principally? Everything. I sometimes doubt even the existence of God, said Levin, in spite of himself, horrified at the impropriety of what he was saying, but his words seemed to make no impression on the priest. How can you doubt the existence of God? he asked, with an almost imperceptible smile. Levin was silent. "'What doubts can you have about the Creator when you contemplate His works?' pursued the priest, in his quick habitual utterance. "'Who ornamented the celestial vault with its stars? Who decked the earth with all its beauty? How can these things exist without a Creator?' And he cast a questioning glance at Levin. Levin felt that it would be out of place to enter into a philosophical discussion with the priest, and, therefore, in his reply, said only what referred directly to the question— I do not know. You do not know? Then how can you doubt that God has created everything? asked the priest, with a light-hearted perplexity. I cannot understand it, replied Levin, blushing, and feeling that his words were stupid, and that in such a position they could not be other than stupid. I pray to God, have recourse to him. The fathers of the church themselves doubted, and asked God to strengthen their faith. The devil has mighty power, and we should resist him. "'Pray to God. Pray to God,' repeated the priest rapidly. Then he kept silent for a moment, as if he were buried in thought. "'They tell me that you intend to marry the daughter of my parishioner and spiritual son, the Prince Sherbatsky,' he added with a smile. "'She is a beautiful girl.' "'Yes,' replied Levin, blushing for the priest. "'Why does he need to ask such questions at confession?' he said to himself. And, as if replying to his thought, the priest continued, you are preparing for marriage, and perhaps God may grant you offspring. Isn't that so? Now, what education will you give to your little children if you do not conquer the temptations of the devil who causes you to doubt? he asked with a gentle reproach. 
If you love your children as a good father, you will not only wish for them riches, luxury, and honor, but still more, their salvation and their spiritual enlightenment by the light of truth. Is this not so? How will you reply to the innocent child who asks you, Papasha, who made all that delights me on the earth, the water, the sunshine, the flower, the plants? Will you answer, I know nothing about it? Can you ignore what the Lord God in his infinite goodness has revealed to you? And if the child asks you, What awaits me beyond the tomb? What will you say to him if you know nothing? How will you answer him? Will you give him up to the seductions of the world and the devil? That is not right, said he, stopping, and turning his head on one side, looked at Levin out of his kind, gentle eyes. Levin was silent, not because he was afraid this time to enter into a discussion with the priest, but because nobody had ever put such questions to him before, and because he thought there was plenty of time to consider them before his children should be in a state to question him. "'You are about to enter upon a phase of life,' continued the priest, "'where one must choose his path and keep to it. "'Pray God in his mercy to keep and sustain you. "'And in conclusion, "'May our Lord God, Jesus Christ, pardon you, my son, "'in his goodness and loving-kindness to all mankind.' "'And the priest, ending the formulas of absolution, "'took leave of him after giving him his blessing. Levin, returning home that day, felt happy enough at the thought of being free from a false situation without having been obliged to lie. Besides, there remained with him a vague idea that what that good and gentle little old man said to him was not altogether so stupid as he at first had thought it was going to be, and that he really had something worth clearing up sometime. Not now, of course, he thought, but later on. Levin felt more than ever at this time that there were troubled and obscure places in his soul, and that, concerning his religion, he was in exactly the same position which he so clearly saw others occupying, and disliked, and which he blamed his friend Sviatsky for. Levin spent that evening with his betrothed at Dolly's, and in trying to explain to Stefan Arkadyevitch the excitable condition in which he found himself, was very gay. He said that he was like a dog being trained to jump through a hoop, which, delighted at having learned his lesson, wags his tail, and is eager to leap over the table and through the window. End of chapter 1The princess and Darya Alexandrovna insisted on strictly observing the established customs, so Levin was not to see his bride on the day of the wedding, and he dined at his hotel with three bachelors, who met in his room by chance. They were Sergey Ivanovitch, Katavasov, an old university friend, now professor of natural sciences, whom Levin had met on the street and brought home to dinner, Chirikov, his chauffeur, or best man, justice of the peace at Moscow, Levin's companion in bear-hunting. The dinner was very lively. Sergey Ivanovitch was in the best of spirits, and greatly enjoyed Katavasov's originality. Katavasov, feeling that his originality was appreciated and understood, made a great display of it, and Chirikov added his share of gaiety to the conversation. "'So, here is our friend, Konstantin Dmitrievich,' said Katavasov, 
with the slow speech of a professor accustomed to talk ex-cathedra. What a talented fellow he was! I speak of him in the past, for he no longer exists. He loved science when he left the university. He took an interest in humanity. Now he employs half his faculties in deceiving himself, and the other half in apologizing for the deception. "'I never met a more confirmed enemy of marriage than you,' said Sergey Ivanovitch. "'No, I am not his enemy. I am a friend of the distribution of labor. People who cannot do anything ought to be the ones to propagate the race.' All the rest should devote themselves to their intellectual development and welfare. That is my opinion. I know a great many people are inclined to confound these two, but I am not of the number. How delighted I should be to hear that you were in love, exclaimed Levin. Pray, invite me to your wedding. But I am already in love. Yes, with some cuttlefish, you know, said Levin, turning to his brother. Mikhail Semyonuitch has written a work on the nutrition, and— Now I beg of you not to confuse matters. It is of no consequence what I have written. But it is a fact that I love a cuttlefish. That need not prevent your loving a wife. No, but my wife would object to my loving the cuttlefish. Why so? You will see how it will be. Now you love your farming, hunting— well, just wait a while. I met Arkhip today, said Cherikov. He says that there are quantities of elk at Prudnoya, and two bears. Well, you must hunt them without me. You see how it is, said Sergey Ivanovitch. You may as well say good-bye to bear hunting. Your wife won't allow it. Levin smiled. The idea that his wife would object to his hunting seemed so delightful that he was ready to renounce the pleasure of ever meeting a bear again. However, I am sorry to hunt those two bears without you, said Chirikov. Do you remember the last time at Kapilovo? The hunting was marvelous. Levin did not care to spoil his friend's illusion that life would be worth nothing without hunting, and so he made no reply. The custom of saying good-bye to one's bachelor life is not without meaning, said Sergey Ivanovitch. However happy one may be, a man regrets his liberty. Confess that, like Gogolevsky, when he was engaged, you feel like jumping out of the window. Certainly, but he won't confess it, said Katavasov with a loud laugh. The window is open. Come now, let us go to Tver. We might find one bear in her lair. Indeed, we still have time to catch the five o'clock train, said Cherikov, smiling. Hear them laugh. Well, upon my honor, replied Levin, smiling, too. I cannot discover the least trace of regret in my soul for my lost liberty. Yes, your soul is in such a chaos now that you cannot find anything in it, said Katavasov. Wait till it becomes calmer, then you will see. No, if I felt in the least degree that there was nothing beyond my feeling of— he did not like to speak of love before Katavasov— of happiness, I should regret my lost freedom. But it is not so at all. I am even delighted at my loss of freedom. "'You are a hopeless case,' exclaimed Katavasov. "'However, let us drink to his recovery, or let us at least hope for him that one percent of his illusions may be accomplished, and even that would be such happiness as was never known on this earth.' Shortly after dinner the guests separated, to dress for the wedding. 
When he was left alone, and had a chance to think over the conversation of these bachelors, Levin again asked himself whether he really regretted the liberty of which his friends had just been talking, and he smiled at the idea. Liberty! Why liberty? Happiness for me consists in loving, in thinking her thoughts, in wishing her wishes, without any liberty. That is happiness. But can I know her thoughts, her wishes, her feelings? whispered some voice. The smile disappeared from his face, and he fell into a deep study. And suddenly a strange feeling came over him. Fear and doubt came over him. Doubt about everything. Suppose she does not love me. What if she is marrying me, merely for the sake of being married? What if she herself does not know what she is doing? He asked himself. Will she, perhaps, see her mistake, and discover, after we are married, that she does not love me, and that she never can love me. And strange, even painful thoughts about Kitty came to his mind. He began to be violently jealous of Vronsky, just as he had been the year before. There came up before him, like the memory of yesterday, that evening when he had seen them together, and he suspected her of not having confessed everything to him. He quickly sprang up. No, he said in despair, I cannot let this remain so. I will go and find her. I will talk with her, and say to her again, for the last time, We are free. Is it not better to stop just where we are? Anything is better than lifelong unhappiness, shame, distrust. And with despair in his heart, full of hatred toward all mankind, toward himself and Kitty, he left the hotel and hastened to her house. He found her in one of the rear rooms, sitting on a large chest, busy with her maid, looking over dresses of all colors, spread out over the backs of the chairs and on the floor. "'Ah!' she exclaimed, beaming with joy at seeing him. "'What brings thee? What brings you?' Even up to this last day she sometimes said twi, sometimes vu. "'I was not expecting you. I am just disposing of my maiden wardrobe.' "'Ah, that is good,' he replied, frowning at the maid. "'Run away, Duniasha. I will call you,' said Kitty." and as soon as she had gone, she asked, using the second person of the pronoun, "'What is the matter with thee?' this time resolutely. She remarked her lover's strange, excited, and gloomy face, and was seized with fear. "'Kitty, I am in torture, and I cannot suffer alone,' he said to her with despair in his voice, stopping in front of her and looking into her eyes in a beseeching way. He saw at once by her face, so sincere and loving, that nothing whatever would result from his determination. Yet he felt an urgent need of being reassured from her own lips. I came to tell you that it is not yet too late, that everything can even now be taken back. What? I do not understand. What is the matter with thee? I am, as I have said and thought a thousand times before, I am not worthy of you. You once could not consent to marry me. Think of it. Perhaps you are mistaken now. Think of it well. You cannot love me if— It is better to acknowledge it, he continued, without looking at her. I shall be miserable, but no matter. Let people say what they please. Anything is better than unhappiness. But anything is better now, while there is yet time. I do not understand you, she replied, frightened. You mean you want to take back your word? Break off our— Yes, 
if you do not love me. "'You must be insane!' she exclaimed, red with vexation. But the sight of Levin's piteous face arrested her anger, and pushing the frocks from one of the chairs, she sat down near him. "'What are you thinking of? Tell me all.' "'I think that you cannot love me. Why should you love me?' "'Pas moi! What can I do?' said she, and she burst into tears. "'Oh, what have I done?' he cried instantly, and throwing himself on his knees, he covered her hands with kisses. When the princess came into the room five minutes later, she found them completely reconciled. Kitty had not only convinced him of her love, but in answer to his question she had explained to him why she loved him. She said that she loved him because she understood him perfectly, because she knew that he could love, and that all he loved was good and beautiful. Levin found the explanation perfectly satisfactory. When the princess came in, they were sitting side by side on the big chest, looking over the frocks and discussing their fate. Kitty wanted to give Dunyasha the brown frock that she wore the day Levin proposed to her, and he insisted that it should not be given to anyone, and that Dunyasha should have the blue frock. "'But don't you see that she is a brunette, and the blue frock will not be becoming to her? I have thought it all over.' When she learned why Levin was there, the princess was half-vexed at him, and sent him home to make his own toilet, and leave Kitty in peace, as Charles was going to dress Kitty's hair. "'She is quite excited enough,' said she. "'She has eaten nothing for days, and is losing all her beauty. And here you come to trouble her with your foolishness. Come, go away now, my dear.' Levin went back to the hotel, guilty and ashamed, but reassured. His brother— Darya Alexandrovna and Stefan Arkadyevitch, in full dress, were already waiting with holy images to bless him. There was no time to be lost. Darya Alexandrovna had to go home again to get her son perfumed and curled for the occasion. The child was to carry the sacred image before the bride. The one carriage must be sent for the chauffeur or best man, while another was to come to the hotel for Sergey Ivanovitch. This day was full of complications. One thing was certain— that no delay was possible, for it was already half-past six. The ceremony of the benediction was anything but solemn. Stefan Arkadyevitch assumed a comically grave attitude beside his wife, raised the sacred image, and obliged Levin to kneel before it, while he blessed him with an affectionate and wicked smile. At last he kissed him three times, and Darya Alexandrovna did the same very hastily, for she was in a great hurry to get away, and in great perplexity about the carriage arrangements. "'Well, this is what we will do. You go for him in our carriage, and perhaps Sergey Ivanovitch will be so good as to come immediately, and to send back his.' "'Certainly, with pleasure.' "'We will come back together. Has the luggage been sent?' asked Stefan Arkadyevitch. "'Yes,' replied Levin, and he called Kuzma to help him dress. End of chapter 2《パート5 Chapter 3 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This Slipperbox recording is in the public domain Read by Marianne Spiegel A throng of people, principally women, surrounded the church, brilliantly lighted for the wedding. Those who could not get inside were pushing up around the windows and elbowing one another as they strove to look through the gratings. Already more than twenty carriages stood in a line in the street, under the supervision of policemen. A police officer stood at the entrance in brilliant uniform, unmindful of the cold. 
Carriages kept driving up and departing, now ladies in full dress, holding up their trains, now men taking off their hats, or kepis. In the church itself both chandeliers and all the candles before the images were already burning. The golden gleam on the red background of the iconostas, and the gilded chasings of the icons, and the silver of the candelabra and of the censers, and the flaggings of the floor, and the tapestries and the banners suspended in the choir and the steps of the pulpit, and the old dingy missals and the priestly robes, were all flooded with lights. On the right-hand side of the warm church, amid the brave array of dress-coats, uniforms, and white neckties, and satin, silk, and velvet robes, of coiffures, flowers, and bare necks and arms, and long gloves, there was a constant flow of restrained but lively conversation, which echoed strangely beneath the high, vaulted roof. Whenever the door opened with a plaintive creak, the murmur ceased, and everyone turned around, hoping at last to see the bridal pair. But the door had already opened more than ten times, and each time it proved to be some belated guest, or guests, admitted among the number of the friends on the right, or some spectator who had been clever enough to deceive or elude the police officer, and sat down among the strangers on the left. The friends and strangers had passed through every phase of waiting. At first they supposed that the bride and bridegroom would be there any minute, and did not attach any importance to the delay. Then they began to look around at the door more and more frequently, wondering what could have happened. At last the delay began to be awkward, and the relatives and invited guests tried to assume an air of indifference, as if they were absorbed in their conversation. The archdeacon, as if to let people know that his time was precious, every now and then gave an impatient cough, which made the windows rattle. In the choir the singers, tired of waiting, could be heard, now trying their voices, and now blowing their noses. The priest kept sending, now a sacristan, now a deacon, to find out if the bridegroom was coming, and appeared himself more and more frequently at the side doors in his lilac cassock with its embroidered sash. Finally a lady looked at her watch, and said to the one sitting next to her, "'This is very strange,' and immediately all the invited guests began to express their surprise and discontent aloud. One of the chaffers, or best men, went to see what had happened. During all this time Kitty, in her white dress, long veil, and wreath of orange blossoms, was standing in the hall of the Shabatsky mansion with her sister, Madame Lova, and her nuptial godmother, looking out of the window, and had been waiting for half an hour for the chaffer to announce the bridegroom's arrival at the church. Levin, meanwhile, in black trousers, but without either coat or waistcoat, was walking up and down his room at the hotel, opening the door every minute to look out into the corridor. But in the corridor nothing like what he wanted was to be seen, and, wringing his hands in despair, he would pour forth his complaints to Stepan Arkadyevitch, who was calmly smoking. "'Did you ever see a man in such a horribly absurd situation?' "'Yes, abominable,' said Stepan Arkadyevitch, with his tranquil smile. "'But be calm. They will have it here very soon.' "'No, hang it,' said Levin, with restrained fury. "'All these idiotic open waistcoats! Absolutely useless!' he added, looking at his tumbled shirt-bosom. "'And what if my trunks have already gone to the railway station?' he exclaimed in despair. "'Then you can wear mine.' "'I might have done that in the first place.' "'Don't be ridiculous. Wait. It is sure to come all right.' The fact was that when Levin began to dress, Kuzma, his old servant, 
was supposed to have taken out his dress coat, his waistcoat, and all that was necessary. "'But the shirt!' cried Levin. "'You have your shirt on,' replied Kuzma, with an innocent smile. Kuzma had not thought to provide a clean shirt, and having received his orders to pack everything up and take them to the Shabatsky's house, from which the young couple was to start away that same evening, he had done so, leaving out only his dress suit. The one that Levin had worn all day was tumbled and unfit to wear with his open waistcoat. It would take too long to send to the Shabatsky's. They sent out to buy one. The lackey returned empty-handed. Everything was shut up. It was Sunday. A shirt was brought from Stefan Arkadyevitch's house. It was ridiculously broad and short. At last, in despair, he had to send to the Sherbatskys to have his trunks opened. So, while the people were waiting in the church, the unfortunate groom, like a wild beast in a cage, was ramping with despair up and down his room, looking out into the corridor, and in his horror and despair, imagining what Kitty might be thinking all this time. Finally, the guilty Kuzma rushed into the room, all out of breath, with the shirt in his hand. "'I got there just in time, as they were carrying off the trunks,' he exclaimed. In three minutes Levin rushed through the corridor, without daring to look at his watch, for fear of increasing his agony of mind. "'You can't change anything,' said Stefan Arkadyevitch, with a smile, following leisurely. "'I told you it would come out all right.' End of chapter 3「Chapter 4 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Marianne Spiegel. Here they come. There he is. Which one? Is it the youngest? Just look at her. Poor little Matushka, more dead than alive, was murmured through the crowd, as Levin, having met the bride at the entrance, came into the church with her. Stefan Arkadyevitch told his wife the reason of the delay, and a smile passed over the congregation as it was whispered about. Levin neither saw any one nor anything, but kept his eyes fixed on his bride. Everyone said that she had grown very homely during these last days, and certainly she did not look so pretty under her bridal wreath as usual, but such was not Levin's opinion. He looked at her high coiffure, with the long white veil attached, and white flowers, at her high-plated collar, encircling her slender neck, in a peculiarly maidenly fashion, and just showing it a little in front, her remarkably graceful figure, and she seemed more beautiful to him than ever. But it was not because the flowers, or the veil, or her Paris gown added anything to her beauty, but because of the expression of her lovely face, her eyes, her lips, with their innocent sincerity, preserved in spite of all this adornment. "'I was beginning to think you had made up your mind to run away,' she said to him with a smile. "'What happened to me was so absurd that I am ashamed to tell you about it,' he replied, reddening, and he was compelled to turn to Sergey Ivanovitch, who came up at that moment. "'The tail of the shirt is a good one,' said Sergey Ivanovitch, throwing back his head with a laugh. "'Yes, yes,' replied Levin, without understanding a word which had been said." "'Well, Kostya, now is the time to make a serious decision,' said Stefan Arkadyevitch, pretending to look greatly scared. "'The question is a grave one, and you must appreciate its full importance. I have been asked whether the candles shall be new ones, or those that have been partially burned. The difference is ten roubles,' he added, pursing his lips in a smile. "'I have decided about it, but I am afraid that you will not approve of it.' Levin knew that there was some joke about it, 
but he could not smile. "'What will you decide on? New ones, or old ones? That is the question.' "'Yes, yes, new ones. Well, I am very glad. The question is settled,' said Stefan Arkadyevitch. "'Oh, how little importance a man is at such a time as this,' he murmured to Jurikov, while Levin drew near to his bride, after looking at her in a bewildered way. "'Notice, Kitty, who first sets foot on the carpet,' said the Countess Nordstone, stepping up to her. "'You look your best,' she said, addressing Levin. "'Are you frightened?' asked Marya Dmitrievna, an old aunt. "'You aren't cold, are you? You look pale. Bend forward a moment,' said Madame Lova, raising her beautiful round arms to repair some disarrangement of her sister's flowers. Dolly came up and tried to say something, but she could not speak, and burst into tears and laughed unnaturally. Kitty looked at those around her as absent-mindedly as Levin. During this time the officiating clergymen had put on their sacerdotal robes, and the priest, accompanied by the deacon, came to the lectern placed at the entrance of the sacred doors. The priest addressed a few words to Levin, but Levin failed to understand what he said. "'Take the bride's hand and go forward,' whispered his best man to him. For a long time he was unable to make out what was expected of him. For a long time they tried to coach him, and were ready to give it up, because he did the opposite of what he was told. Finally, he comprehended that he was to take Kitty's right hand with his right hand, without changing his position. When at last he took the bride by her hand in the proper way, the priest advanced a few steps, and stopped in front of the lectern. The relatives and invited guests followed the young couple with a murmur of voices and a rustling of trains. Someone stooped down to arrange the bride's train. In the church, a silence so profound reigned that the drops of wax could be heard falling from the candles. The old priest, in a calate, his white hair shining like silver, drawn back behind his ears, drew forth his wrinkled hands from beneath his heavy silver chasuble, ornamented with a cross of gold, approached the lectern, and turned over the leaves of the missal. Stefan Arkadyevitch came softly and spoke in his ear, and made a sign to Levin, and then stepped back. The priest lighted two candles decorated with flowers, and, holding them slanting in his left hand, so that the wax slowly fell from them, turned toward the young couple. It was the same old man who had heard Levin's confession. He looked at the bride and bridegroom, out of his sad, weary eyes, and then, with a sigh, blessed Levin with his right hand, then, with a special tenderness, placed his fingers on Kitty's bended head, gave them the candles, and taking the censer, moved quietly away. "'Is this all real?' thought Levin, and he glanced at his bride. He looked down somewhat from above on her profile, and by the motion of her lips and her eyebrows he knew that she felt his look. She did not raise her head, but the high-plated collar which reached to her little pink ear trembled a little. He saw that she was stifling a sigh, and her hand imprisoned in its long glove trembled as it held the candle. The whole affair of the shirt, his late arrival, his conversation with his relatives and friends, their displeasure, his ridiculous position— Everything at once vanished from his memory, and he was conscious of a mixed feeling of terror and joy. The archdeacon, a tall, handsome man, his hair curling all around his head and wearing a stikar, or surplice, of silver cloth, came briskly forward, and with the customary gesture raised his stole with two fingers and stopped before the priest. "'Bless us, O Lord!' Slowly, one after the other, 
rocking the atmosphere into billows of sound, echoed the solemn syllables. "'May the Lord bless you now and through all ages,' replied the old priest, in a sweet and musical voice, still turning over the leaves. And the response, chanted by the invisible choir, filled the church to the very roof of the vault with a deep, full sound, which increased, then ceased for a moment, and softly died away. They prayed, as usual, for the eternal repose and welfare of their souls, for the synod and the emperor, and then for the servants of God, Constantine and Yagatrina, that day about to be wed. Let us pray the Lord to send them his love, his peace, and his aid, the whole church seemed to say in the voice of the archdeacon. Levin listened to these words, and was impressed by them. How did they know that aid was exactly what I need? Yes, aid. What can I know? What can I do without aid? He thought, recalling his recent doubts and fears. When the deacon had ended the liturgy, the priest, with a book in his hand, turned toward the bridal couple. O oh, eternal God, who uniteth by an indissoluble bond those who are separate, he read, in a strong, melodious voice. Thou who didst bless Isaac and Rebekah, and showest thy mercy to their descendants. Bless also these thy servants, Constantine and Yekaterina, and pour forth thy benefits upon them. Because thou art a merciful and beneficent God, we offer thee the glory, to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. Amen again chanted the invisible choir. Who unites by an indissoluble bond those who are separate? How those profound words respond to what one feels at such a time! Does she understand it as I do? thought Levin. And looking down, he gazed into her eyes. From the expression of Kitty's face, he concluded that she did feel it as he did. But he was mistaken. She scarcely comprehended the words of the service, and during the time of the espousal did not even hear them. She could not hear them or comprehend them, so powerful was the single feeling which filled her heart and kept increasing all the time. This feeling was one of delight at the perfect fulfillment of what had been taking place in her heart during the past month and a half, and during those six weeks had made her happy and restless by turns. From that day when, in her cinnamon-colored gown, in the hall of their house on the Arbatsky, she had silently approached Levin to give herself wholly to him, from that day, from that moment, she felt a complete rupture had been made with all her past life, and another existence, new and unknown, without, however, changing her outward life, had begun. These six weeks had been at once a very happy and a very trying time. Her whole life, her hopes and desires, were all concentrated on this man, whom she did not even yet fully understand, to whom she was united by a sentiment which she understood still less, and which attracted her and repelled her by turns, and at the same time she had gone on living in the conditions of her former life. Living in this old life, she was horrified at herself, at her complete and invincible indifference toward her whole past, to things, to habits, even to her relatives, whom she loved, and who loved her, her mother, who was pained by her indifference, and her gentle father, whom she had loved more than anyone else in the world. At one moment she was horrified at this indifference, at the next she was filled with joy at that which had brought her to such a feeling. She could not imagine or desire anything except life with this man, 
but this new life had not yet begun, and she could form no definite idea of it. It was only an expectation, a fear and joy of something new and unknown, and now this expectation, as well as her remorse for not regretting the past, were at an end, and the new life was beginning. This new and unknown future could not fail to be alarming. But whether it was alarming or not, it was only the fulfillment of what had taken place in her soul six weeks before, only the sanctification of what had been taking place in her soul for a long time. The priest, turning to the lectern again, with difficulty took off Kitty's little ring and passed it as far as the first joint of Levin's finger. I unite thee, Constantine, servant of God, to Yekaterina, servant of God. And he repeated the same formula in placing a large ring on Kitty's delicate little rosy finger, pathetic in its weakness. The bridal pair tried to understand what was expected of them, but each time made a mistake, and the priest corrected them in a low voice. At last the priest, blessing them with his fingers, again gave Kitty the large ring and Levin the small one, and again they got confused, and twice passed the rings from hand to hand, failing to interchange them as they should have done. Dolly Chirikov and Stefan Arkadyevitch stepped out to assist them in their difficulty. The people around them smiled and whispered. But the tenderly solemn expression on the faces of the young couple did not change. On the contrary, even when they were blundering with the rings, they looked more serious and solemn than before, and the smile on Stefan Arkadyevitch's face died away, as he whispered to them that they were to put on their own rings. It seemed to him that a smile might be offensive to them. O thou who, from the beginning of the world, hast created man, male and female, continued the priest, after the ceremony of the rings, and hast given to man the woman to be his aid and delight. Therefore, O thou, our Lord God, who hast given thy blessing to thy chosen, to thy servants, our fathers, to thine inheritance, do thou bless thy servants Constantine and Yekaterina, and confirm their nuptials in faith and concord and truth and love. Levin's breast heaved. Disobedient tears filled his eyes. He kept feeling more and more that all his thoughts on marriage, his visions of how he should dispose his life, had hitherto been infantile, and that there was something that had never been comprehensible to him. And now he understood its meaning less than ever, although he was now wholly in its power. End of chapter 4Part 5, Chapter 5 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A recording by Marianne Spiegel. All Moscow, all the relatives and acquaintances, were at the church. And during the time of the marriage service, in the brilliant light that flooded the church, in that throng of handsomely dressed women and girls, and of men in white neckties, in swallowtails, or in uniform, there was a decorously subdued conversation, especially among the men, for the women were absorbed in observing all the details of a ceremony which is always so full of interest for them. A little group of friends surrounded the bride, and among them were her two sisters, Dolly and the beautiful Madame Lava, just returned from abroad. "'Why is Mary in lilac at a wedding? It is almost morning,' said Madame Korensky. "'With her complexion it is her only salvation,' replied Madame Dubetsky. "'But I wonder why they had the ceremony in the evening. 
that savours of the merchant. It is pleasanter. I, too, was married in the evening, said Madame Korunsky, sighing and recalling how beautiful she had been on that day, and how ridiculously in love with her her husband had been, and how it was all so different now. They say that those who have been best men more than ten times never marry. I try to make myself proof against marriage, in this way, but the place was taken, said Count Sinievin, to the handsome young Princess Charskaya, who had designs on him. A smile was her only reply. She was looking at Kitty, and thinking how and when she would stand with Count Sinievin in Kitty's place, and how she would then remind him of the joke that he had made. Sherbatsky confided to the old Frilina Nikolaeva his intention to place the crown on Kitty's headdress to bring her good luck. "'There's no need of wearing a headdress,' replied Frilina Nikolaevna, who had long ago decided that if the old widower, whom she was setting her cap for, should offer himself, she would be married very simply. I don't like this display. Sergey Ivanovitch, who was talking with Darya Dmitrievna, jestingly declared that the fashion of wedding tours was becoming widespread, because young couples were always rather bashful. "'Your brother must be very proud of his choice. She is charming. You must envy him.' "'The time has gone by for that, Darya Dmitrievna,' he replied, and an unexpected expression of sadness overspread his face. Stefan Arkadyevitch was telling his sister-in-law his pun on divorce. "'Somebody ought to arrange her wreath,' replied the latter, without listening. "'What a pity that she has grown so ugly,' said the Countess Nordstone to Madame Lova. "'After all, he isn't worth her little finger, is he?' "'I don't agree with you. I am very much pleased with him.' and not only because he is going to be my beau-faire, replied Madame Lova. How well he appears! It is so difficult to appear well at such a time, and not to be absurd. He is neither ridiculous nor stiff. One feels that he is touched. Did you expect this marriage? Almost. He has always been in love with her. Well, we shall see which will be the first to step on the carpet. I have advised Kitty to look out for that. That makes no difference— replied Madame Lova. In our family we are all submissive wives. But I have taken pains to keep mine under the thumb. How is it with you, Dolly? Dolly was standing near them, and heard them, but she did not reply. She was affected. Tears filled her eyes, and she could not have uttered a word without crying. She was glad for Kitty and Levin. She was thinking of her own wedding, and as she glanced at the brilliant Stefan Arkadyevitch, she forgot the real state of things, and only remembered his first, innocent love. She was thinking, too, of other women, her relatives and acquaintances, whom she remembered at this important and solemn hour of their lives, how they, like Kitty, stood under the crown, how they renounced the past with joy, and began a mysterious future, with hope and fear in their hearts. Among the number she recalled her dear Anna, the details of whose approaching divorce she had just heard, she had seen her enveloped in a white veil, as pure as Kitty, with her wreath of orange blossoms. And now, it is terribly strange, she whispered. The sisters and friends were not the only ones to follow with interest the minutest details of the ceremony. There were women among the strangers looking on, who held their breath, for fear of losing a single movement of the bride or bridegroom, and who replied absent-mindedly to the jokes or idle remarks of the men, often not even hearing them. Why is she so troubled? Are they marrying her against her will? Against her will? To such a handsome man? Is he a prince? Is that her sister, in white satin? There. 
just hear the deacon howl let her fear her husband are the singers from trudoff no from the synod i've asked the servant about it he says that her husband is going to take her away to his estate awfully rich they say that is why she is marrying him they make a handsome pair and you pretend to say marya vasilievna that they don't wear crinolines any longer just look at that one in the puce-coloured dress you would say she was an ambassador's wife by the way she is dressed do you see now what a sweet little creature the bride is like a lamb for the slaughter you may say what you please i can't help pitying her such were the remarks of the spectators who had succeeded in getting past the door of the church End of chapter five part five chapter six of anna karenina by leo tolstoy translated by nathan haskell doyle this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. As the service of espousal was coming to an end, one of the officiating priests spread a piece of rose-colored silk in front of the lectern, in the center of the church. The choir chanted an artistic and complicated psalm, in which the tenor and bass sang responsively, and the priest, turning to the young couple, attracted their attention to the piece of rose-colored fabric. They were both familiar with the superstition that whichever one of the bridal couple first sets foot on the carpet becomes the real head of the family, but neither Kitty nor Levin remembered anything about it after they had gone a few steps. They did not hear the remarks exchanged about them, or the discussions between those who thought that he was the first and those who were sure that they touched it simultaneously. After the customary questions as to their willingness to enter into the bonds of matrimony, and would they plight their mutual troth, and their answers, which sounded strangely loud to their own ears, a new office began. Kitty listened to the words of the prayers and tried to understand them, but she could not. The farther the ceremony proceeded, the more her heart overflowed with triumphant joy, which prevented her from fixing her attention. They prayed to God that the pair might have the gift of chastity and might rejoice in the sight of many sons and daughters. They recalled how God had made the first woman from Adam's side that the woman must leave father and mother and cling to her husband, and the twain shall be one flesh, and that this is a great miracle. They prayed God to give them fecundity and prosperity, as he had blessed Isaac and Rebekah, Joseph, Moses, and Sephora, and to let them see their children to the third and fourth generation. All this is lovely, thought Kitty, as she heard these words. All this is just as it should be and a smile of happiness, which was reflected on the faces of all who saw her, shone on her fair, lovely face. Put it entirely on, were the words heard in every part of the church, as the priest brought forward the crowns, and Sherbatsky, in his three-buttoned gloves, tremblingly, held the wreath high above Kitty's head. "'Put it on,' whispered the latter, smiling. Levin turned round and was struck by the radiant joy which filled her face, and the same feeling, in spite of himself, took possession of him. He felt, like her, happy and serene. They listened with joy in their hearts to the reading of the epistle, and the archdeacon's voice echoing the last verse, fully appreciated by the strangers, who were impatiently waiting for it. Joyfully they drank the warm red wine and water from the flat cup, and they felt still more joyful when the priest, throwing back his chasuble, led them around the lectern, holding both their hands in his, while the bass sang, at the top of his voice, Isai Luki. 
Sherbatsky and Chirikov, carrying the crowns, smiling and constantly treading on the bride's train, now straggled behind, now bumped into the crowned couple, as the priest paused in front of the relics. The gleam of joy on Kitty's face seemed to be communicated to all present. Levin was sure that the deacon and the priest fell under its influence as well as himself. When the crowns had been taken from their heads, the priest read the last prayers and congratulated the young couple. Levin looked at Kitty and thought he had never seen her so beautiful. It was the beauty of that new radiance of happiness which transformed her. He wanted to say something to her, but did not know whether the ceremony was yet over or not. The priest relieved him from his uncertainty, and said gently to him, with a kindly smile, "'Kiss your wife, and you kiss your husband,' and he took the candles. Levin, with circumspection, kissed his wife's smiling lips, gave her his arm, and went out of the church with a new and strange feeling of being suddenly very near to her. He had not believed, he could not believe, that all this was reality. Nor until their astonished and timid eyes met did he believe it, because he felt that they were indeed one. That same evening, after the supper, the young couple started for the country. End of chapter 6「Part Five, Chapter Seven of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Marianne Spiegel. Vronsky and Anna had been travelling together in Europe for three months. They had visited Venice, Rome, Naples, and now they were just arrived at a small Italian city where they intended to make a considerable stay. At the hotel, the head butler a regular Adonis of a man, who wore his thick pomaded hair parted behind from the neck, and a dress-coat with a wide expanse of white shirt-front and watch-charms over his rotund belly, was standing with his hands thrust into his pockets, scornfully blinking his eyes, and giving curt answers to a gentleman who had entered the hotel. Hearing steps on the other side of the entrance, the head-butler turned around, and, seeing the Russian count, who rented his most expensive apartments, he respectfully drew his hands out of his pockets, and, with a low bow, informed the Count that a messenger had come to say that the palazzo was at his service. The agent was ready to sign the agreement. "'Ah, I am very glad,' said Vronsky. "'Is Madame at home?' "'She has been out, but she has returned,' replied the butler. Vronsky took off his wide-brimmed soft hat, and wiped his heated forehead with his handkerchief, and smoothed his hair which was so arranged as to hide his bald spot. Then, casting a hasty glance at the stranger, who had stopped and was looking at him earnestly, he started to go. "'This gentleman is a Russian, and was inquiring for you,' said the head-butler. With a mingled feeling of vexation, because he never could get away from acquaintances, and of pleasure at the idea of any distraction from his monotonous existence, Vronsky once more looked at the gentleman who had started to go and then stopped, and at one and the same time their eyes met. Golanishev! Vronsky! It was indeed Golanishev, one of Vronsky's schoolmates at the Corps of Pages. He had belonged to the Liberal Party in the Corps, and, after his graduation, he had taken a civil rank and had not served. The comrades had entirely drifted apart since their graduation, and had met only once, 
At that meeting Vronsky had perceived that Golenishev looked down from the lofty heights of his chosen liberal profession on Vronsky's profession and career. Consequently, Vronsky, at that meeting with Golenishev, had given him that cold and haughty reception with which it was his fashion to treat people, as much as to say, You may like or dislike my manner of life, but it is absolutely of no consequence to me, and you must respect me if you want to know me. Golenishev had been scornfully indifferent to Vronsky's manner. That meeting, it would seem, should have driven them still further apart. Yet now, at the sight of each other, they each uttered a cry of delight. Vronsky had never realized how glad he would be to see Golenishev, but the fact was that he did not know how bored he was. He forgot the unpleasant impression of their previous meeting, and with magnificent pleasure extended his hand to his old comrade. And likewise, a look of satisfaction succeeded the troubled expression on Golenishev's face. "'How glad I am to see you,' said Vronsky, with a friendly smile which showed his handsome white teeth. I heard the name Vronsky, but which I did not know. I am very, very glad. But come in. Well, what are you doing? Oh, I have been living here more than a year, working. Ah, said Vronsky, with interest, but come in. And, according to the habit of Russians, instead of saying in Russian what he did not wish to be understood by servants, he said in French, Do you know Madame Karenin? We have been travelling together. I was just going to her room." And while he was speaking, he studied Golenishev's face. "'Ah, I did not know,' remarked Golenishev, carelessly. But he did know. "'Have you been here very long?' "'I? Oh, this is the fourth day,' replied Vronsky, continuing to study his companion. "'Yes, he is a gentleman, and looks upon things in the right light,' he said to himself, giving a favorable interpretation to Golenishev's way of turning the conversation. "'He can be presented to Anna.' his views are all right. Vronsky, during this three months which he had been spending with Anna abroad, had felt every time that he met with new acquaintances a hesitation as to the manner in which they would look on his relations with Anna, and for the most part the men had looked on them in the right light. If he, or they, had been asked what they meant by the expression, in the right light, they would have found it hard to tell. In reality, those that according to Vronsky looked on it in the right light, had never looked on it at all, but as a general thing contented themselves with a wise discretion, not asking questions or making allusions, and behaved altogether as well-bred people behave when presented with delicate and complex questions, such as surround life on all sides. They pretended that they fully appreciated the meaning and significance of the situation, recognized and even approved of it, but considered it ill-judged and superfluous to explain it. Vronsky instantly saw that Golenishev was one of those discreet people, and was therefore glad to meet him. In fact, Golenishev behaved toward Madame Karenin when he was introduced to her, in exactly the manner that Vronsky demanded. It evidently cost him no effort to avoid all words that would lead to any awkwardness. He had never seen Anna before, and was delighted with her beauty, and still more with the perfect simplicity with which she accepted the situation. She flushed when she saw Vronsky come in with Golenishev, and this infantile color which spread over her frank and lovely face pleased him immensely. But he was delighted, because from the very first, as if purposefully, even in the presence of a stranger, which might have caused restraint, she called Vronsky Alexey, and told how they had just rented a house, which the people called a palazzo, 
and how she was going to occupy it with him. The simple and straightforward facing of their situation was delightful to Golenishev. Perceiving Anna's happy and vivacious manner, knowing Alexey Alexandrovitch and Vronsky, it seemed to him that he thoroughly understood her. It seemed to him that he understood what she herself did not understand, how she could desert her unhappy husband and her son, and lose her good repute, and still feel animated, gay, and happy. "'It is in the guide-book,' said Golenishev, speaking of the palazzo, which Vronsky called by name. "'There is a superb Tintoretto there, in his latest manner. "'Do you know that? It is splendid weather. Let's go over and look at it again,' said Vronsky, addressing Anna. "'I should like to very much. I will go and put on my hat. Did you say it was hot?' said she, pausing at the door and looking back to Vronsky, and again the bright color came into her face. Vronsky saw by her look that she was uncertain how he wished to treat Golenishev, and that she was afraid that her behavior might not be what he desired. He looked at her long and tenderly, then he replied, No, not very. And it seemed to her that she comprehended him perfectly, and especially that he was satisfied with her, and, replying with a smile, she went out with a quick and graceful motion. The friends looked at each other, and there came into the faces of both an expression of embarrassment, as if Golenishev, admiring her, wished to make some complimentary remark, and had not the courage, while Vronsky both wished and feared to hear it. Well, then, Vronsky began, so that some conversation might be started. So you are settled here. Are you still interested in the same pursuits? he asked, remembering that he had been told that Golenishev was writing something. Yes, I have been writing the second part of the Two Origins, replied Golenishev, kindling with delight at the question. That is, to be more exact, I am not writing yet, but have been collecting and preparing my materials. It will be far more extended, and will touch on almost all questions. At home, in Russia, they can't understand that we are successors of Byzantium, and he began a long and vehement explanation. Vronsky at first felt awkward because he did not know about the first part of the two origins, about which the author spoke, as if it were something well known. But afterward, as Golenishev began to develop his thought, and Vronsky saw what he meant, then, even though he did not know about the two origins, he listened not without interest, for Golenishev spoke well. But Vronsky was surprised and annoyed at the irritable excitement under which Golenishev labored while talking about the object that absorbed him. The longer he spoke, the brighter grew his eyes, the more animated were his arguments in refutation of imaginary opponents, and the more angry and excited the expression of his face. Vronsky remembered Golenishev at the School of Pages, a lad of small stature, thin, nervous, agile, a good-hearted and gentlemanly lad, always at the head of his class, and he could not understand the reasons for such irascibility, and he did not approve of it. And it especially displeased him that Golenishev, a man of good social standing, should put himself down on the level of these common scribblers, and get angry with them because they criticized him. Was it worth while? It displeased him. But, nevertheless, he felt that it was Golenishev who was making himself miserable, and he was sorry for him. This unhappiness, almost amounting to insanity, was particularly noticeable on his mobile and rather handsome face, while he went on so hurriedly and heatedly expressing his thoughts 
that he did not notice Anna's return. As Anna came in, wearing her hat, and with a mantle thrown over her shoulders, and stood near them, twirling her sunshade in her lovely, slender hand, Vronsky felt a sense of relief in turning away from Golenishev's feverish eyes, fixed keenly on him, and looked with an ever-new love at his charming companion, radiant with life and gaiety. It was hard for Golenishev to come to himself, and at first he was surly and cross. But Anna, who was flatteringly amiable toward everyone, for such as this time was her disposition, quickly brought him into sympathy with her gay and natural manner. After essaying various topics of conversation, she brought him round to painting, about which he spoke very well, and she listened to him attentively. They walked over to the palazzo, and made a thorough inspection of it. "'I am very glad of one thing,' said Anna to Golenishev. "'Alexey will have a nice atelier. Of course you'll take this room,' she added, turning to Vronsky and speaking to him in Russian, using the familiar twi, thou, as if she already looked on Golenishev as an intimate, before whom it was not necessary to be reserved. "'Do you paint?' said Golenishev, turning vivaciously to Vronsky. "'Yes, I used to paint long ago, and now I am going to take it up again.' replied Vronsky, with color. "'He has great talent,' cried Anna, with a radiant smile. "'Of course I am not a judge, but good judges say so.'" End of chapter 7 Part 5, Chapter 8 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel Anna, during this first period of freedom and rapid convalescence, felt herself inexcusably happy and full of joyous life. The memory of her husband's unhappiness did not poison her pleasure. This memory, in one way, was too horrible to think of. In another, her husband's unhappiness was the cause of a happiness for her too great to allow regret. The memory of everything that had followed since her sickness, the reconciliation with her husband, the quarrel, Vronsky's wound, his sudden appearance, the preparations for the divorce, the flight from her husband's home, the separation from her son. All this seemed like a delirious dream, from which she awoke and found herself abroad alone with Vronsky. The recollection of the injury which she had done to her husband aroused in her a feeling akin to disgust, and like that which a drowning man might experience after having pushed away a person clinging to him. The other person was drowned, of course, what had been done was evil, but it was the only possible salvation, and it was better not to return to those horrible memories. One consoling argument in regard to her conduct occurred to her at the first moment of the rupture, and now, whenever she thought of all that had passed, she went over this argument. "'I have done my husband an irrevocable injury,' she said to herself, "'but at least I get no advantage from his misfortune.' I also suffer, and shall suffer. I give up all that was dearest to me. I give up my good name, and my son. I have sinned, and therefore I do not desire happiness, do not desire a divorce, and I accept my shame, and the separation from my son. But, however sincere Anna was when she reasoned thus, she had not suffered. She had felt no shame. With that tact, which both she and Vronsky possessed to perfection, they had avoided, while abroad, any meeting with Russian ladies, 
and they would never put themselves into any false position, but only associated with those who pretended to understand their situation much better than they themselves did. Nor even the separation from her son, whom she loved, caused her any pain at this time. Her baby, her daughter, was so lovely, and had so filled her heart since only the daughter was left to her, that she rarely thought of the son. The joy of living caused by her convalescence was so keen, the conditions of her existence were so new and delightful, that Anna felt inexcusably happy. The more she came to know Vronsky, the more she loved him. She loved him for his own sake, and for his love for her. The complete surrender to him was a delight. His presence was always a joy to her. All the traits of his character, as she came to know them better and better, became to her inexpressibly dear. His appearance, now that he dressed in civil attire instead of uniform, was as entrancing to her as for a young girl desperately in love. In all he said, thought, or did, she saw something noble and elevated. She herself often felt frightened at this excessive worship of him. She tried in vain to find any imperfection in him. She did not dare to confess to him her own inferiority, lest he, knowing it, should love her less. And now there was nothing that she feared so much, although there was not the slightest occasion for it, as to lose his love. But she could not fail to be grateful to him for the way he treated her, or to show him how much she prized it. Although in her opinion he had shown such a decided vocation for statesmanship, in which he would certainly have played an important part, and had sacrificed this ambition for her, still he had never expressed the slightest regret. He was more than ever affectionately respectful, and careful that she should never feel in the slightest degree the compromising character of her position. This man, so masculine, not only never opposed her, but moreover it might be said that he had no will besides hers, and that his only aim seemed to be to anticipate her desires. And she could not but appreciate this, though this very assiduity in his attentions, this atmosphere of solicitude which he threw around her, was sometimes oppressive to her. Vronsky, meantime, notwithstanding the complete realization of all that he had desired so long, was not entirely happy. He soon began to feel that the accomplishment of his desires was only a small portion of the mountain of pleasure which he had anticipated. This realization now proved to him the eternal error made by men who imagine their happiness lies in the accomplishment of their desires. During the first of the time after he had begun to live with her, and had put on his citizen's clothes, he experienced all the charm of a freedom such as he had never known before, and the freedom of love, and he was satisfied with that. But not for long. He soon began to feel rising in his soul the desire of desires, tosca, melancholy, homesickness, and we. Involuntarily he began to follow every light caprice as if it were serious aspirations and ends. It was necessary to fill sixteen hours each day with some occupation, living, as they did, abroad, in perfect freedom, away from the social and military duties that took Vronsky's time at Petersburg. He could not think of indulging in the pleasures such as he had enjoyed as a bachelor during his previous trips abroad, for one experiment of that kind, a scheme of a late supper with some acquaintances, reduced Anna to a most unexpected and uncomfortable state of dejection. The enjoyment with foreign or Russian society 
was impossible on account of the peculiarity of their relation. And to amuse himself with the curiosities of the country was not to be spoken of, not only because he had already seen them, but because as a Russian and a man of sense, he could not find in them that immense importance that the English are pleased to attach to them. And as a hungry animal throws itself on everything that presents itself, hoping to find in it something to eat, so Vronsky, with perfect spontaneity, attacked now politics, now new books, now painting. As, when he was young, he had shown some inclination toward art, and not knowing what to do with his money, he began to collect engravings, and had tried his hand at painting. And now he took it up again, and employed in it that expended superfluity of energy which demanded employment. He had the capacity for appreciating art, and he thought that this was all that an artist needed. After having for some time hung doubtful which he would choose, the religious, the historical, genre, or the realistic, he actually began to paint. He understood all kinds, and could get inspiration from each. But he could not imagine that it was possible to be entirely ignorant of the various styles of art, and to draw inspiration directly from what is in the soul itself, not caring what may be the result, or to what famous school it may belong. As he did not know this, he drew his inspiration, not directly from life, but from life as expressed in art. So he became easily and speedily inspired, and with equal ease and rapidity succeeded in making what he undertook to paint a very good resemblance to that style which he was trying to imitate. More than all others, the graceful and effective French school appealed to him, and in this style he began a portrait of Anna in an Italian costume, and this portrait seemed to him, and to all that saw it, very successful. End of chapter 8 Part 5, Chapter 9 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel the old, dilapidated palazzo into which they had moved supplied Vronsky with the agreeable illusion that he was not so much a Russian proprietor, a stallmeister, in retirement, as he was an enlightened amateur and protector of art, in his own modest way an artist, who had sacrificed society, his ties, his ambition, for a woman's love. This ancient palace, with its lofty stuccoed ceilings, its frescoed walls, its mosaic floors, its yellow tapestries, its thick yellow curtains at the high windows, its vases on mantelpiece and consoles, its carved doors, and its melancholy halls hung with paintings, lent itself readily to this illusion. This new role which Vronsky had chosen, together with their removal to the palazzo and acquaintance with several interesting persons, which came about through Golenishev, made the first part of this period very enjoyable. Under the instruction of an Italian professor of painting, he made some studies from nature, and he took up the study of Italian life during the Middle Ages. The medieval Italian life became so fascinating to him that he began to wear his hat and throw his plaid over his shoulders in the medieval style, which was very becoming to him. "'Here we are alive, and yet we know nothing,' said Vronsky one morning to Golenishev, who came in to see him. "'Have you seen Mikhailov's painting?' he asked, and at the same time handed him a Russian paper just received, and indicated an article on this artist, 
who was living in that very city, and had just completed a picture about which many reports had long been in circulation, and which had been sold on the easel. The article severely criticized the government and the academy that an artist of such genius was left without any encouragement and aid. "'I have seen it,' replied Golanishev. "'Of course he is not without talent, but his tendencies are absolutely false. He always shows the Ivanov-Strauss-Raisin concept of Christ and religious art.' "'What is the subject of his painting?' asked Anna. "'Christ before Pilate. The Christ is a Jew with all the realism of the new school.' and as this subject was a favorite one with him, he began to develop his ideas. I cannot understand how they can fall into such a gross mistake. The type of the Christ in art was clearly represented by the old masters. Accordingly, if they want to paint not God, but a sage or a revolutionist, let them take Franklin, or Socrates, or Charlotte Corday, but not Christ. They take the very person whom art should not attempt to portray, and then— is it true that this Mikhailov is in such poverty? asked Vronsky, who felt that in his quality of Russian Messinus he ought to find some way of aiding the artist, whether his painting was good or not. It is doubtful. He is a famous portrait painter. Have you not seen his portrait of Madame Vasilchikov? But it seems he doesn't care to paint portraits any longer, and perhaps that is the reason he is in need. I say that— Couldn't we ask him to paint Anna Arkadyevna's portrait? "'Why mine?' she demanded. "'After your portrait of me, I want no other. "'It would be better to let him paint Annie,' so she called her daughter. "'Or her,' she added, looking out of the window at the pretty Italian nurse, who was just taking the baby into the garden. And at the same time she gave Vronsky a furtive glance. This pretty Italian woman, whose face Vronsky had taken as a model for a picture, was the only secret woe in Anna's life.' Vronsky painted her picture, admired her beauty and her medieval qualities, and Anna did not dare to confess to herself that she feared she was going to be jealous, and was, accordingly, all the more kind to her and her little boy. Vronsky also looked out of the window, and at Anna's eyes, and, instantly turning to Golanishev, said, "'And so you know this Mikhailov?' "'I have met him, but he is an original, a chudak, without any education, you know,' one of these new-fashioned savages such as you meet with nowadays. You know them, these free-thinkers, who rush headlong into atheism, materialism, universal negation. Once, Golanishev went on to say, either not noticing or not wishing to notice that both Vronsky and Anna were ready to speak, once the free-thinker was a man educated in the concepts of religion, law, and morality, who did not ignore the laws by which society is regulated, and who reached freedom of thought only after long struggles. But now we have a new type of them, free thinkers who grow up without even knowing that there are such things as laws in morality and religion, who will not admit that such authorities exist, and who possess only the sentiment of negation, in a word, savages. Mikhailov is one of these. He is the son of a major domo, or Oberlakai, at Moscow, and never had any education, when he entered the academy, and made a reputation, he was willing to be taught, for he is not a fool, and, with this end in view, he turned to that source of all learning, the magazines and reviews. Now you know in the good old times, if a man, let us say a Frenchman, wanted to get an education, he would study the classics. 
the preachers, the tragic poets, the historians, the philosophers, and you can see all the intellectual labor that involved. But nowadays, he turns to negative literature, and succeeds very speedily in getting a smattering of such a science. And, again, twenty years ago, he would have found in the same literature traces of the struggle against the authorities and secular traditions of the past. He would have understood from this dispute that there was something else. But now he turns directly to a literature where the old traditions are of no avail at all. But men say up and down there is nothing, natural selection, evolution, struggle for existence, negation, and all. In my article, do you know, said Anna, after exchanging several glances with Vronsky, and noticing that he was not interested in the artist's education, but was occupied only with the thought of helping him and getting him to paint the portrait. "'What do you say?' said she, resolutely cutting short Golenishev's verbiage. "'Let us go and see him.' Golenishev, after deliberating, readily consented, and, as the artist lived in a remote quarter, they had a carriage called. An hour later, Anna, occupying the same seat in the calash with Golenishev and Vronsky, drove up to an ugly new house in a distant part of the city. When they learned from the concierge's wife, who came to receive them, that Mikhailov permitted visitors to his studio, but that he was now at his lodgings a few steps distant, they sent her to him with their cards, and begged to be admitted to see his paintings. End of chapter 9part 5 chapter 10 of anna karenina by leo tolstoy translated by nathan haskell doyle this slipperbox recording is in the public domain read by marianne spiegel the painter mikhailov was at work as usual when the cards of count vronsky and golenishev were brought to him he had been painting all the morning in his studio on his great picture but when he reached his house he became enraged with his wife because of her failure to make terms with their landlady who demanded money. "'I have told you twenty times not to go into explanations with her. You are a fool, anyway. But when you try to argue in Italian, you are three times as much of a fool,' said he, at the end of a long dispute. "'Why do you get behindhand so? It is not my fault. If I had any money—' "'For heaven's sake, give me some peace!' cried Mikhailov, his voice thick with tears, and, putting his hands over his ears, he hastily rushed to the workroom, separated from the sitting-room by a partition, and bolted the door. "'She hasn't any common sense,' he said to himself, as he sat down at his table, and, opening a portfolio, addressed himself with feverish ardor to a sketch which he had already begun. He never worked with such zeal and success as when his life went hard, and especially when he had been quarreling with his wife. "'Ah, it must be somewhere,' he said to himself as he went on with his work. He had begun a study of a man seized with a fit of anger. He had made the sketch some time before, but he was dissatisfied with it. No, said he, that one was better. But where is it? He went back to his wife with an air of vexation, and, without looking at her, asked his eldest daughter for the piece of paper which he had given her. The paper with the sketch on it was found, but it was soiled and covered with drops of tallow, Nevertheless, he took it as it was, laid it on the table, examined it from a distance, squinting his eyes, then suddenly he smiled, with a satisfied gesture. "'So, so!' he cried, taking a pencil and drawing some rapid lines. 
one of the tallow spots gave his sketch a new aspect. He sketched in this new pose, and suddenly remembered the prominent chin and energetic face of the man of whom he bought his cigars, and instantly he gave his design the same kind of a face and prominent chin. He laughed with delight. The figure ceased to be something vague and dead, but became animated and took a form which could not be bettered. This figure was alive, and was clearly and indubitably delineated. It was possible to correct the sketch in conformity with the demands of this figure. It was possible and even requisite to set the legs in a different way, to make an absolute change in the position of the left arm, to rearrange the hair. But after he had finished these corrections he made no changes in the figure, but only cleared away what concealed it. He, as it were, took from it the veils behind which it was not wholly visible. Each new stroke only the more exposed the entire figure in all its energetic power, just as it had suddenly appeared to him in the spot made by the wax. He laughed with delight. He was carefully finishing his design when the two cards were brought to him. "'I will come instantly,' he replied. He went to his wife. "'There, come, Sasha, don't be vexed.' he said with a smile, tender and timid. You were wrong. So was I. I will settle matters. And, having made his peace with her, he put on an olive-green overcoat with velvet collar, took his hat, and went to his studio. His successfully completed sketch was already quite forgotten. Now he was delighted and surprised by the visit of these stylish Russians, who had come to see him in a carriage. In the depth of his soul his opinion on the painting which was on his easel at that time, was as follows. No one has ever painted another like it. He did not believe that his painting was better than all the Raphael's, but he knew that no one had ever put into a picture what he had tried to put into this one. This he knew assuredly, and had known it ever since he had begun to paint it. Nevertheless, the criticisms of others, whatever they were, possessed for him an enormous weight, and stirred him to the depths of his soul. Any remark, however insignificant, which showed that the critic saw even the smallest part of what he himself saw in this picture, stirred him to the depths of his soul. He felt that his critics had a depth of insight superior even to his own, and he expected to have them discover in his picture new features that had escaped his own observation. And often, in the judgments of visitors who came to look at it, it seemed to him he discovered this. He hurried to the door of his studio, and— in spite of his emotion, was struck by the soft radiance of Anna, who was standing in the shadow of the portico, and listening to something which Golanishev was saying to her, and at the same time eagerly watching the artist's approach. The artist, without definite consciousness of it, instantly stowed away in the pigeonholes of his brain the impression she had made on him, to make use of it some day, just as he had used the tobacconist's chin. The visitors, whose ideas of Mikhailov had been greatly modified by Golanishev's description of him, were still more disenchanted when they saw him. Mikhailov was a thick-set man, of medium height, and with a nimble gait, and in his cinnamon-colored hat, his olive-green coat, and his trousers worn tight when the style was to wear them loose, produced an unfavorable impression, increased by the vulgarity of his broad face, and the mixture of timidity and pretentious dignity which it expressed. "'Do me the honor to enter,' he said, trying to assume an air of indifference, and, going to the vestibule, he took a key out of his pocket and opened the door. 
End of chapter 10. Part 5, Chapter 11 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. As they entered the studio, Mikhailov again glanced at his guests, and stored away in his memory the expression of Vronsky's face, especially its cheekbones. Notwithstanding the fact that this man's artistic sense was always at work storing up new materials, notwithstanding the fact that his emotion grew greater and greater as the crucial moment for their criticism of his work approached, still he quickly and shrewdly gathered from almost imperceptible indications his conclusions regarding his three visitors. That one, meeting Golanishev, must be a Russian resident in Italy. Mikhailov did not remember either his name or the place where he had met him, or whether he had ever spoken to him. He remembered only his face, as he remembered all the faces that he had ever seen, but he also remembered that he had once before classed him in the immense category of pretentiously important, but really expressionless faces. An abundance of hair and a very high forehead would make the casual observer take him to be a man of importance, but his face had an insignificant expression of puerile agitation concentrated in the narrow space between his eyes. Vronsky and Anna were, according to Mikhailov's intuition, rich and distinguished Russians, ignorant of art, like all rich Russians who play amateur and the connoisseur. They have undoubtedly seen all the old galleries, he thought, and now are visiting the studios of the German charlatans and the imbecile English pre-Raphaelites, and have come to me in order to complete their survey. He knew very well the fashion in which the dilettante the more intellectual they were, the worse they were, visited the studios of modern painters, with the single aim of having the right to say that art was declining, and that, the more you study the moderns, the better you see how inimitable the great masters of old were. He expected all this, he saw it in their faces, and he read it in the indifference with which his visitors conversed together as they walked up and down the studio, leisurely examining the mannequins and busts, while waiting for him to take the covering off his painting. But, in spite of this, all the time that he was turning over his studies, raising his window-blinds, and uncovering his paintings, he experienced a powerful emotion, all the more so because, though he considered that all distinguished and wealthy Russians must necessarily be cattle and fools, yet Vronsky, and particularly Anna, pleased him. Here, he said, stepping back from the easel and pointing to the painting, is the Christ before Pilate, Matthew, chapter 27. He felt his lips tremble with emotion, and he took his place behind his guests. During the few seconds, during which the visitors looked silently at the painting, Mikhailov also looked at it, and looked at it with the indifference of a stranger. In those few seconds he anticipated a superior and infallible criticism from these three persons, whom, but a moment before, he had despised. He forgot all that he had thought about his painting during the three years while he had been painting it. He forgot all those merits which had been so indubitable to him. He looked at it now with the cold and critical look of a stranger, and found nothing good in it. He saw in the foreground the irate face of Pilate and the Christ's serene countenance, and in the middle distance the figures of Pilate's servants, and among them John, looking on at the proceedings. Each face with its attempted expression, with its faults, with its recitifications, each face which, 
with its own peculiar character, had, as it were, been a growth from himself, and had cost him so much travail and delight, and all these faces, which he had changed so many times so as to unify them, all the shades of colour, all the nuances obtained with such extraordinary pains, all this, taken together and looked at in such a way, now seemed to him commonplace, a thousandfold commonplace. The face which he had regarded with the most complacency, the face of the Christ in the very centre of the picture, which had roused his enthusiasm as he had developed it, was wholly spoilt for him when he looked at his painting with their eyes. He saw a well-painted picture, nay, not even well-painted, for now he clearly detected hosts of faults in it, a repetition of all those interminable Christs of Titian, Raphael, Rubens, and all the same soldiers and Pilate. All about it was trivial, poor, and antiquated, and even badly painted, spotty and feeble. They would be justified in repeating politely hypocritical remarks in his presence, pitying him and ridiculing him after they were gone. The silence, which in reality did not last more than a minute, seemed to him intolerably long, and to abridge it and show that he was not agitated, he made an effort and addressed Golanishev. "'I think that I have had the honour of meeting you before,' said he, glancing anxiously first at Anna, then at Vronsky, so that he might not lose for an instant the changing expression of their faces. Certainly, we met at Rossi's the evening when that Italian girl, the new Rachel, made a recitation. Don't you remember? replied Golanishev, turning away his face from the picture without the least show of regret and addressing the artist. Seeing, however, that Mikhailov was expecting him to say something about the picture, he added, Your work has made great progress since the last time I saw it, and I am now, just as I was then, greatly impressed with your pilot. You have represented a good but feeble man, a Chinovic to the bottom of his soul, who is absolutely blind to what he is doing. But it seems to me... Mikhailov's mobile face suddenly lighted up, his eyes gleamed, he wanted to reply, but his emotion prevented him, and he pretended to have a fit of coughing. In spite of his low estimation of Golanishev's artistic instinct, in spite of the insignificance of the remark, true though it was, about the expression of Pilate's face represented in the face of a functionary, in spite of the humiliation which such a remark spontaneously elicited at the first sight of the painting, implicitly subjected him to, since the more important features of the painting were left unnoticed, Mikhailov was in raptures over this criticism. Golanishev had expressed his own conception of Pilate, the fact that this observation was one out of a million possible observations, all of which, as Mikhailov knew perfectly well, would be true, did not diminish for him the significance of Golanishev's remark. He suddenly conceived a liking for his guest, and suddenly flew from dejection to enthusiasm. Instantly his whole painting became vital once more with a life inexpressibly complex and profound. He again tried to say that he himself had that conception of Pilate, but his lips trembled, so that he had no control over them, and he could not say a word. Vronsky and Anna were talking in that low tone of voice peculiar to picture exhibitions, and caused by the desire not to say anything that might give offence to the artist, and, more than all, not to let anyone hear those absurd remarks which are so easily made in regard to art. Mikhailov thought that his picture was making an impression on them also, and he approached them. What an admirable expression the Christ has, said Anna. 
This expression pleased her more than anything else in the painting, and she felt that the Christ was the principal figure in it, and therefore that this eulogy would be agreeable to the artist. She added, One can see that he pities Pilate. This, again, was one of those million accurate but idle observations which his picture, and especially the figure of Christ, might have elicited. She said that Christ pitied Pilate. In the expression of the Christ there was bound to be an expression of pity, because there was in it the expression of love, a supernal color, a readiness for death, and a realization of the idleness of words. Of course, Pilate should stand for the functionary, the chinovic, and the Christ should show pity for him, since one is the incarnation of the fleshly life, the other of the spiritual life. All this, and much besides, flashed through Mikhailov's mind, and once more his face was radiant with joy. Yes, and how that figure is painted, how much atmosphere, one could go round it, said Golenishev, evidently showing by this observation that he did not approve of the design and scope of the figure. Yes, it is a wonderful masterpiece, said Vronsky. How alive those figures in the background are. There is technique for you, he added, turning to Golenishev and alluding to a discussion in which he had avowed his discouragement in the technique of the art. Yes, yes, very remarkable, said Golenishev and Anna simultaneously. Notwithstanding the condition of enthusiasm to which he had risen, the remark about technique nettled Mikhailov. He scowled and looked at Vronsky with an angry expression. He had often heard this word technique, and he really did not know what was meant by it. He knew that this word signified the mechanical ability to paint and sketch, and had nothing to do with the thing painted. He had often noticed, as in the present case, that technical skill was opposed to the intrinsic merit of a work, as if it were possible to paint a bad picture with talent. He knew that it required great attention and care in removing the cloth not to injure the work, and in removing all the covers. But the technique of painting was not in that. If in the same way to a little child, or to his cook, were revealed what he saw, then the cook or the child would not hesitate to express what they saw. But the most experienced and skillful of technicians could not paint anything by mechanical ability only. It requires that the realm of inspiration should be opened before him. Moreover, he saw that the very fact of talking about technique made it impossible to praise him for it. In everything that he had painted, and was painting, he saw the glaring faults resulting from the carelessness with which he had removed the covers, faults impossible now to rectify without ruining the whole production. And in almost all the figures and faces he saw the remains of veils that had not been perfectly removed, and spoiled the painting. "'The only criticism that I should dare to make, if you will allow me,' said Golenishev. "'Oh, I should be very glad. Beg you to favor me.' replied Mikhailov, pretending to smile. "'Is that you have painted a man made God, and not God made man. However, I know that that was your intention.' "'I cannot paint any Christ that is not in my heart,' replied Mikhailov, gloomily. "'Yes, but in that case, excuse me, if you will allow me to express my thought, your painting is so beautiful that this observation can do it no harm, and, besides, it is my own individual opinion.' You look on this in one way. Your very motive is peculiar. Take Ivanov, for example. I imagine that if the Christ is to be reduced to the proportions of a historical figure, then it would be better for him to choose a new historical theme, one less hackneyed. 
but suppose this theme is the grandest of all for art. Mm, by searching, others may be found, just as grand. But the fact is, art, in my estimation, cannot suffer discussion. And now this question is raised in the minds of believers, or non-believers, by Ivanov's painting. Is that God, or not God? And thus the unity of the impression is destroyed. Why so? It seems to me that this question can no longer exist for enlightened men, replied Mikhailov. Golenishev was not of this opinion, and, dwelling on his first thought about the unity of the impression required by art, he made an onslaught on Mikhailov. Mikhailov grew excited, but could not say anything in defense of his ideas. End of chapter 11Part Five, Chapter Twelve of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Anna and Vronsky, weary of their friend's learned loquacity, exchanged glances. Finally, Vronsky, without saying anything to his host, went over to a small painting. Oh, how charming! What a gem! Wonderful! How fascinating! said both of them at once. "'What pleases them so?' thought Mikhailov. He had completely forgotten this picture, painted three years before. He had forgotten all the anguish and joy which that painting had caused him while he had been working at it day and night for days at a time. He had forgotten about it, as he always forgot about his pictures when once they were finished. He did not even like to look at it, and he had brought it out only because he was expecting an Englishman who had thought of purchasing it. "'That is nothing.' he said. Only a study. But it is capital, replied Golenishev, very honestly, falling under the charm of the painting. Two children were fishing under the shade of a laburnum. The elder, all absorbed in his work, was cautiously disentangling his float from a bush. The younger one was lying in the grass, leaning his blond, frowsy head on his hand, and gazing at the water with great, pensive blue eyes. What was he thinking about? The enthusiasm caused by this study brought back somewhat of Mikhailov's first emotion, but he did not love the vain memories of the past, and, therefore, pleasant as such praise was to him, he preferred to take his guest to a third painting. But Vronsky asked him if the painting was for sale. But to Mikhailov, who was excited by the presence of visitors, the question of money was very distasteful. "'It was put up for sale,' said he, darkly frowning. After his visitors had gone, Mikhailov sat down before his painting of Christ and Pilate, and mentally reviewed all that had been said, and if not said, had been understood by them. And how strange! The observations which seemed so weighty when they were present, and when he put himself on their plane of observation, now lost all significance. He began to examine his work with his artist's eye, and soon regained his full conviction of its perfection and significance so that he could shut out all other interests and make the effort necessary for his best work. The foreshortening in the leg of the Christ was not quite correct. He seized his palette and set himself to work, and, while he was correcting it, looked long at the figure of John, which seemed to him to show the highest degree of perfection, and yet his visitors had not even noticed it. Having corrected the leg of Christ, he tried to give this also a few touches, but he felt too excited to do it. However, he could not work when he was cool any better than he could when he was too near the melting point, or when he was too clairvoyant. 
it was only one stop of transition from indifference to inspiration, and only when he reached this was work possible. But today he was too excited. He started to cover the canvas. Then he stopped, lifting the drapery with one hand, and smiled ecstatically, and looked for a long time at his St. John. At last, tearing himself from his contemplation, he let the curtain fall and went home, weary but happy. Vronsky, Anna, and Golanishev, returning to the palazzo, were very lively and gay. They talked about Mikhailov and his paintings. The word talent was often heard as they talked. They meant by it an innate gift, almost physical, independent of intellect and heart, and they tried to express it by all that had been experienced by the artist. It seemed as if they needed to have a term which should express something of which they had not the slightest comprehension, but yet wanted to talk about. There is no denying his talent, they said, but his talent is not sufficiently developed, because he lacks intellectual culture, a fault common to all Russian artists. But the painting of the two boys appealed to their tastes, and again and again they recurred to it. How charming! How natural and how simple! And he did not realize how good it was. Certainly I must not fail to buy it, said Vronsky. End of chapter 12「Anna Karenina」by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Mikhailov sold Vronsky the little picture, and also agreed to paint Anna's portrait. He came on the appointed day, and began his work. Even on the fifth sitting the portrait struck everyone, and especially Vronsky, by its resemblance, and by its peculiar beauty. It was remarkable how Mikhailov was able to hit upon her peculiar beauty. "'One must know her and love her as I love her, to get her gentle and spiritual expression,' thought Vronsky. And yet he found in Mikhailov's portrait exactly that expression. But this expression was so faithful that it seemed to him and to others that they had always known it. "'I have spent so much time and never get ahead,' said Vronsky, referring to his own portrait of Anna and he has only to look at her, to paint her. That is what I call technique. That will come, said Golanishev, to console him, for in his eyes Vronsky had talent, and, moreover, had a training which ought to give him a lofty view of art. But Golanishev's belief in Vronsky's talent was sustained by the fact that he needed Vronsky's praise and sympathy with him in his own work, and he felt that the praise and support ought to be reciprocal. It was a fair exchange." In a stranger's house, and especially in Vronsky's palazzo, Mikhailov was an entirely different man from what he was in his own studio. He showed himself almost venomously respectful, as if he were anxious to avoid all intimacy with people whom at heart he did not respect. He always called Vronsky, Your Excellency, and in spite of Vronsky's and Anna's repeated invitations, he never would stay to dinner, or come except at the hours for the sitting. Anna was even more genial to him than to the others, and grateful for her portrait. Vronsky was more than polite to him, and was anxious for his criticism on his paintings. Golanishev never lost an opportunity of inculcating sound theories of art. Still, Mikhailov remained just as cool as ever to them all. But Anna felt that he liked to look at her, even though he avoided all conversation with her. When Vronsky wanted to talk about his own work, he remained obstinately silent 
and he was just as obstinately silent when he was shown Vronsky's painting and pictures, and he took no pains to conceal the weariness which Golenishev's sermons caused him. On the whole, Mikhailov, by his distant and disagreeable, as it were hostile, behavior, was very unpopular with them, even after they came to see him closer, and they were glad when the sittings were over, and the painter, having completed an admirable portrait, ceased to come. Golenishev was the first to express a thought which all had been thinking, that Mikhailov was envious of Vronsky. We will agree that he is not envious because he has talent, but he is vexed to see a wealthy man, of high position, a count, and apparently they are all vexed at that, reaching without a special trouble the skill to paint as well, if not better, than he, though he has devoted his life to painting, but above all at your mental culture, which he has not. Vronsky took Mikhailov's part, but he felt at heart that his friend was right, for it seemed to him extremely natural that a man in an inferior position should envy him. The two portraits of Anna, painted from life by him and Mikhailov, might have shown Vronsky the difference between him and Mikhailov, but he did not see it. Only after Mikhailov had finished his portrait, he ceased to work at his, having decided it was a superfluity, but he still devoted himself to his painting of medieval life. He himself, and Golenishev, and Anna especially, felt that it was very good, because it resembled the works of the old masters far more than Mikhailov's painting did. Mikhailov, meantime, in spite of the pleasure which he took in doing Anna's portrait, was even more glad than the others were when the sittings came to an end, and he no longer had to hear Golenishev's discourses about art, and he was allowed to forget Vronsky's paintings. He knew that it was impossible to prevent Vronsky from amusing himself with painting. He knew that he, and all other dilettante, had the right to paint as much as they pleased, but it was disagreeable to him. No one can prevent a man from making for himself a big wax doll and kissing it, but if this man takes his doll and sits it in the presence of a lover, and begins to caress his doll as the lover caresses the woman he loves, then it becomes unpleasant to the lover. Vronsky's painting produced on him a similar feeling. It was ridiculous and vexatious, pitiable and disgusting. Vronsky's enthusiasm for painting and the Middle Ages was, however, of short duration. His art instinct was strong enough to prevent him from finishing his painting. His work came to a standstill. He had a dim consciousness that his faults, at first apparently trifling, would grow more and more grievous if he went on. The same thing happened to him that happened to Golenishev, who was conscious that he had nothing to say, and kept deceiving himself with the notion that his thought was not yet ripe, that he was training it and collecting materials. But this made Golenishev bitter and irritable, while Vronsky could not deceive himself or torture himself, and, least of all, grow irritable. With his habitual decision of character, without speaking to justify himself or to offer explanations, he simply gave up his painting. But, without this occupation, his life in this little Italian city quickly became intolerable. The palazzo suddenly appeared old and filthy. The spots on the curtains assumed a sordid aspect. The cracks in the mosaics, the broken stucco of the cornices, the eternal Golenishev, the Italian professor, and the German tourist, all became so unspeakably wearisome that it was necessary to make a change. Accordingly, he and Anna, who was surprised by this abrupt disenchantment, decided to return to Russia to live in the country. 
Vronsky wanted to pass through Petersburg to make business arrangements with his brother, and Anna was anxious to see her son. They decided to spend the summer on Vronsky's large patrimonial estate. End of chapter 13「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」「ドイル」But as he went on in his married existence, he discovered at each step that it was utterly different from what he had imagined it would be. At each step he experienced what a man would experience who had been charmed with the graceful and joyful motion of a boat on the sea, and afterwards should find himself in the boat. He saw that it was not enough to sit still and not rock. It was necessary to be on the lookout, never for a moment forgetful of the course, to think of the water under his feet. To row, and rowing for unaccustomed arms is hard. Easy enough it is to look on, but it is hard, very hard, to work, even though it be very agreeable. When still a bachelor, looking at the conjugal life of others, at their little miseries, quarrels, jealousies, he had often laughed scornfully in his heart of hearts. In his future married life, never should any such thing happen. Even all the external forms of his private life should be in every respect absolutely different from that of others. And lo and behold, instead of that, his life with his wife not only refused to arrange itself peculiarly, but, on the contrary, was wholly made up of those very same insignificant trifles which he had formerly so despised, but which now, in spite of him, assumed an extraordinary and irrefutable importance. And Levin saw that the regulation of all these trifles was not nearly so easy as he had supposed it would be. Notwithstanding the fact that Levin supposed he had the most delicate comprehension of family life, he, like all men, had imagined that it was only meant as the gratification of his love, and that nothing should prevent it, and that no petty details ought to interfere with it. According to his idea, he was to do his work and rest from it in the delights of love. His wife was to be his love. And that was all. But, like all men, he forgot that she, too, had to work. His surprise was great to find how this charming and poetic kitty, in the first weeks, even in the first days of their married life, could be thinking, planning, taking charge of the tablecloths, the furniture, the mattresses, the table service, the kitchen. Even during their engagement, he was dumbfounded at the decided way in which she refused to travel abroad. And at her determination to go immediately to their country home, as if she knew what was needful and could think of other things besides her love. It vexed him then, and now many times he still felt vexed, to find that she took upon herself these petty cares and labors. But he saw that it was unavoidable, and, as he loved her, although he could not see why she did such things, and although he laughed at her for doing them, he could not help admiring. He laughed to see how she disposed of the new furniture which came from Moscow, how she rearranged everything in her room and his, how she hung the curtains, provided for the guest rooms and the rooms that Dolly would have, directed her new chambermaid, how she ordered the old cook to provide for dinner, how she discussed with Agafya Mikhailovna, 
whom she removed from the charge of the provisions. He saw how the old cook smiled gently as he received fantastic orders, impossible to execute. He saw how Agafya Mikhailovna shook her head pensively at the new measures introduced by her young mistress into the larder. He saw how wonderfully charming she was when she came to him, half laughing, half crying, to complain because her maid, Masha, insisted on treating her like a child, and no one would heed her orders. It all seemed to him charming, but strange, and he thought it would be better if it were otherwise. He could not comprehend the sense of metamorphosis which she felt at finding herself the mistress, permitted to see the preparation of cauliflower and kvass, or confections, to spend all the money she wanted, and to command whatever pastry she pleased, after having always had her parents to restrain her fancies. She was now making joyful preparations for the arrival of Dolly and the children, and was thinking of the pies which she would have made for them, and how she would surprise Dolly with all her new arrangements. She herself could not have given any reasons for it, but it was a fact that the details of housekeeping had an irresistible attraction for her. She foresaw evil days to come, instinctively feeling the approach of spring, and knowing that unhappy days would also surely come. She prepared her little nest as well as she could, and made haste both to build it and to learn how to build it. This zeal for trifles, so entirely opposed to Levin's lofty ideal of happiness, seemed to him one thing that disillusioned him, while the same activity, the meaning of which escaped him, but which he could not help loving, was one of the things that gave him new delight. The quarrels were also a disenchantment and a charm. Never had it entered into Levin's head that between him and his wife there could be any relations other than those of gentleness, respect, tenderness, and here, even in their honeymoon, they were disputing, so that Kitty declared that he did not love her, that he was selfish, and burst into tears and wrung her hands. The first of these little differences arose in consequence of a ride which Levin took to see a new farm. He stayed half an hour longer than he had said, having missed his way in trying to come home by a shorter road. He rode homeward, thinking only of her, of her love, of her happiness, and the nearer he came to the house the more his heart glowed with affection for his wife. He hurried to her room with the same feeling, only much intensified, as he had experienced on the day when he went to the Sherbatskys to offer himself. An angry expression, such as he had never seen in her face, received him. He was going to kiss her. She pushed him away. "'What is the matter?' "'You've been enjoying,' she began, wishing to show herself cold and bitter. But hardly had she opened her mouth when the ridiculous jealousy, which had been tormenting her for half an hour while she had been waiting for him, sitting on the window-seat, broke out in a torrent of angry words. He then began for the first time to understand clearly what before he had seen only confusedly, when after the crowning they went out of the church. He saw that she was not only near to him, but that he did not know at all where his personality began or her personality ended. He felt this by the painful sensation of internal division which he experienced at that instant. At first he was offended, but at the same moment he realized that he had no right to be offended, because she and he were one and the same. At that first instant he experienced a feeling such as a man might have when, having suddenly received a sharp blow from behind, turns around with an angry desire to revenge himself on the culprit, and discovers that he has accidentally inflicted the blow on himself, and that there is no one to be angry with, and that he must bear the pain and appease it. Never again did he experience this feeling with such force. 
but this first time it was long before he could give an account of it. A natural impulse impelled him to exonerate himself, and show Kitty how wrong she was, but that would have irritated her still more, and increased the rupture which was the cause of all their unhappiness. A natural impulse tempted him to disavow the blame and cast it at her, but a second and stronger impulse came to close the breach as quickly as possible, and not let it grow wider. For him to remain under the shadow of an injustice was cruel, but, under the pretext of a justification, to cause her pain was still worse. Like a man half asleep, wearied with pain, he wished to free himself from it, to throw off the painful place, but, on fully waking, he found that the painful place was himself. Patience only was necessary to give relief to the pain, and he tried to apply this remedy. Reconciliation followed. Kitty felt herself in the wrong, and, though she did not confess it, was more than ever tender to him, and they felt a new and doubled happiness of love. But this did not prevent these differences from coming up, and coming up very frequently from the most unexpected and insignificant causes. These collisions often arose from the fact that they were still ignorant of what was indispensable for each, and from the fact that during all this first period they both were often in a bad frame of mind. When one was happy and the other depressed, then peace was disturbed, but when they both happened to be in low spirits, then such childish things were sufficient to provoke misunderstandings that they could not even remember afterwards what they were quarreling about. It is true, when they were both in good spirits, their joy of life was doubled, but nevertheless this first period was a trying time for them both. All those early days they felt with a special vividness the strain, just as if both of them were pulling in contrary ways on the chain that bound them. Especially the honeymoon, from which Levin expected so much, was far from honey-sweet, but remained in the memories of both of them the most trying and humiliating period of their lives. Both of them afterwards tried to blot from their memories all the ugly, shameful incidents of this unhealthy period, during which they so rarely found themselves in a normal state of mind, were so rarely themselves. Life became better regulated only after their return from Moscow, where they made a short visit in the third month after the wedding. End of chapter 14part 5 chapter 15 of anna karenina by leo tolstoy translated by nathan haskell doyle this librivox recording is in the public domain read by marianne spiegel they were just back from moscow and enjoying their solitude levin was sitting at his library table writing kitty dressed in a dark violet dress which she had worn in the first days of their marriage and which levin had always liked was making borderie anglaise as she sat on the divan on the great leather divan, which ever since the days of Levin's father and grandfather, had stood in the library. Levin enjoyed her presence while he was writing and thinking. He had not abandoned his occupations, his farming, and the treatise in which the principles of his new method of conducting his estate were to be evolved. But, as before, these occupations and thoughts seemed to him small and useless in comparison with the gloom that overshadowed his life, so now they seemed just as petty and unimportant in comparison with the life before him, irradiated as it was with the full light of joy. He kept up his occupations, but felt now that the center of gravity of his interests had shifted, and that consequently he looked otherwise and more clearly than formerly at the matter. 
In former days this occupation seemed like the salvation of his life. In former days he felt that without it life would be altogether gloomy. Now these occupations were necessary in order that his life might not be too monotonously bright. As he took up his manuscript again, reading over what he had written, he felt with satisfaction that the work was worth his attention. Many of his former thoughts seemed to him exaggerated and extravagant, but many of the gaps became clearly evident to him as he reviewed the whole subject. He was now writing a new chapter, in which he treated of the causes for the unfavorable condition of Russia's agriculture. He argued that the poverty of the country was caused not entirely by the unequal distribution of the land property and false economical tendencies, but that this cooperated with the abnormal introduction of a veneer of civilization, especially the means of communication, the railways, which produced an exaggerated centralization in the cities, the development of luxury, and consequently the creation of new industries at the expense of agriculture, an extraordinary extension of the credit system, and its concomitant stock speculation. It seemed to him that with a normal development of riches in the empire all these signs of exterior civilization would appear only when the cultivation of the land should have attained a proportional development, when it should have at least been established on correct, determining conditions. That the wealth of a country ought to increase at a regular ratio, and in such a way that agriculture should not be outstripped by other branches of wealth that the means of intercommunication ought to be developed in conformity with the natural development of agriculture, and that in view of our improper use of the land, the railways, constructed not by reason of actual necessity, but from political motives, were premature, and instead of the cooperation which they were expected to give to agriculture, they arrested it by encouraging the spread of manufacturing and the credit system. And that, therefore, just as a one-sided and premature development of one organ in the body would prevent its general development, so for the general development of wealth in Russia, the credit system, the means of intercommunication, the recrudescence of manufacturing industries, however indispensable they may have been in Europe, where they are opportune, have in Russia done nothing but harm by keeping from sight the most important question as to the organization of agriculture. While Levin was writing, Kitty was thinking how her husband, on the evening before they left Moscow, had watched unnaturally the young Prince Charsky, who, with remarkable lack of tact, had made love to her. "'He is jealous,' she said to herself. moi, how good and stupid he is! To be jealous of me! If he only knew that for me they are all like Pyotr, the cook!' And she glanced with a strange feeling of proprietorship at the back of her husband's head and sunburnt neck. It is a shame to interrupt him, but he has plenty of time. I must see his face. Will he feel how I am looking at him? I will, will, for him to turn around. There, I will make him. And she opened her eyes as wide as she could, as if to concentrate more strength into her gaze. Yes, they attract all the best sap and give a false appearance of wealth, murmured Levin, Ceasing to write, and conscious that she was looking at him and smiling, he turned around. "'What is it?' he asked, smiling and getting up. "'He did turn around,' she thought. "'Nothing. I only willed to make you turn around.' And she looked at him as if to fathom whether he was vexed or not, because she had disturbed him. "'Well, how good it is to be alone together. For me, at least,' said he, radiant with joy, going to where she sat. 
I am so happy here. I never, never want to go away again, especially not to Moscow. But what were you thinking about? I? I was thinking... No. No. Go on with your writing. Don't let your mind be distracted, she replied, pouting. I must cut all these eyelet holes now. Do you see? And she took her scissors and began to snip. No. Tell me what you were thinking about, he insisted, sitting down near her and following all the movements of her little scissors. Oh, what was I thinking about? About Moscow and the nape of your neck? What have I done to deserve this great happiness? It is supernatural. It is too good, said he, kissing her hand. To me, on the contrary, the happier I am, the more natural I find it. You have a little stray curl, he said, turning her head around carefully. A stray curl? Let it be. We must think about serious things. But their conference was interrupted, and, when Kuzma came to announce tea, they separated as if they were guilty. Are they returned from town? asked Levin of Kuzma. They're just back. They're unpacking the things now. Come as quickly as you can, said Kitty, going from the library. Levin, left alone, shut up his books and papers in a new portfolio, bought by his wife, washed his hands in a new wash-basin, supplied with elegant new appurtenances, also bought by her, and, smiling at his thoughts, nodded his head disapprovingly. He was tormented by a feeling which resembled remorse. His life had become too indolent, too spoiled. It was a life of a Capuan, and he felt ashamed of it. To live so is not good, he thought. Here, for three months, I have scarcely done a thing. Today, almost for the first time, I have set about anything seriously, and what was the result? I have hardly begun before I give it up. I even neglect my ordinary occupations. I don't watch the men. I don't go anywhere. Sometimes I am sorry to leave her. Sometimes I see that she is out of spirits. I, who believed that existence before marriage counted for nothing, and that life only began after marriage, and here, for three months, I have been spending my time in absolute idleness. This must not go on. I must do something. Of course, she is not to blame, and one could not lay the least blame on her, but I ought to have shown more firmness, and have preserved my manly independence. Otherwise, I shall get into confirmed bad habits. Of course, she's not to blame. A discontented man finds it hard not to blame someone or other for his discontent, and generally the very person who is nearest. And so Levin felt vaguely that while the fault was not his wife's, and he could not help lay it to her charge, it was owing to her bringing up. It was too superficial and frivolous. That fool of a Charsky, for example. I know she wanted to get rid of him but she did not know how. Then he went on again. Yes, besides the petty interest of housekeeping. She looks out for those and enjoys them. Besides her toilette and her borderie anglaise, she has no serious interests, no sympathy in my labors, in my schemes, or for the musics, no taste for reading or music, and yet she is a good musician. She does absolutely nothing, and yet she is perfectly content. Levin in his heart judged her thus, and did not comprehend that his wife was making ready for the time of activity which was ere long to come to her, when she would be at once wife, mistress of the house, mother, nurse, teacher. He did not understand that she knew this by intuition, 
and in preparation for this terrible task could not blame herself for these indolent moments and the enjoyment of love which made her so happy while she was cheerily building her nest for the future end of chapter fifteen part five chapter sixteen of anna karenina by leo tolstoy translated by nathan haskell doyle this librivox recording is in the public domain read by marianne spiegel when levin came upstairs again his wife was sitting in front of the new silver samovar behind the new tea-set reading a letter from dolly with whom she kept up a brisk correspondence old agafya mikhailovna with a cup of tea was cosily sitting at a small table beside her you see your lady has asked me to sit here said the old woman looking affectionately at kitty these last words showed levin that the domestic drama which had been going on between kitty and agafya mikhailovna was at an end he saw that notwithstanding the chagrin which agafya mikhailovna felt at resigning the reins of government to the new mistress kitty was victorious and had just made peace with her here i have been looking over your letters said kitty handing her husband an illiterate-looking envelope. I think it is from that woman, you know, of your brother's. I have not read it, but this is from Dolly. Imagine it. She has been to take Grisha and Tanya to a children's ball at the Sarmatskys. Tanya was dressed like a little marchioness. But Levin was not listening. With a flushed face he took the letter from Marya Nikolaevna, his brother Nikolai's discarded mistress, and began to read it. This was already the second time that she had written him. In her first letter she told him that Nikolai had sent her away without reason, and she added, with touching simplicity, that she asked no assistance and wanted nothing, though she was reduced to puniary, but that the thought of what Nikolai Dmitrich would do without her in his feeble condition was killing her. She begged his brother to look out for him. Her second letter was in a different tone. She said that she had found Nikolai Dmitrievich and was living with him again in Moscow, that she had gone with him to a provincial city where he had received an appointment. There they had quarrelled with the chief and immediately started for Moscow. But on the way he had been taken so violently ill that he would probably never leave his bed again. He constantly calls for you, and besides, we have no money, she wrote. Read what Dolly writes about you, Kitty began, but when she saw her husband's dejected face, she suddenly stopped speaking. Then she said, "'What is it? What has happened?' "'She writes me that Nikolai, my brother, is dying. I must go to him.' Kitty's face suddenly changed. The thought of Tanya as a little marchioness, of Dolly and all, vanquished. "'When shall you go?' "'Tomorrow.' "'May I go with you?' she asked. "'Kitty, what an idea!' he replied reproachfully. "'Why, what an idea!' she exclaimed, vexed to see her proposal received with such bad grace. "'Why, pray, should I not go with you? I should not hinder you in any way. I—' "'I am going because my brother is dying,' said Levin. "'Why should you go?' "'For the same reason that you do.' "'At the same time so solemn for me, she thinks only of the discomfort of being left alone,' said Levin to himself, and this excuse for taking part in such a solemn duty angered him. It is impossible, he replied sternly. Agafya Mikhailovna, sensing that a quarrel was imminent, quietly put down her cup and went out. Kitty did not even notice it. Her husband's tone wounded her all the more deeply because he evidently did not believe what she said. I tell you, 
If you go, I am going too. I shall certainly go with you. I certainly am going, said she, with angry determination. Why is it impossible? Why did you say that? Because God knows when, or in what place I shall find him, or by what means I shall reach him. You would only hinder me, said he, doing his best to retain his self-control. Not at all. I don't need anything. Where you can go, I can go too, and— Well, if it were nothing else, it would be because of that woman with whom you cannot come in contact. Why not? I know nothing about all that, and don't want to know. I know that my husband's brother is dying, and that my husband is going to see him, and I am going too, because— Kitty, don't be angry, and remember that in such a serious time it is painful for me to have you add to my grief by showing such weakness, the fear of being alone. There, now, if it would bore you to be alone, go to Moscow. You always ascribe to me such miserable sentiments, she cried, choking with tears of vexation and anger. I am not so weak. I know that it is my duty to be with my husband when he is in sorrow, and you want to wound me on purpose. You don't want to take me. No, this is frightful, to be such a slave, cried Levin, rising from the table, no longer able to hide his anger. At the same instant he perceived that he was doing himself harm. Why, then, did you get married? You might have been free. Why, if you repent already, and Kitty fled into the drawing-room. When he went to find her, she was sobbing. He began to speak, striving to find words not to persuade her, but to calm her. She would not listen, and did not allow one of his arguments. He bent over her, took one of her recalcitrant hands, kissed it, kissed her hair, and then her hands again, but still she refused to speak. But when, at length, he took her head between his two hands and called her Kitty, she softly wept, and the reconciliation was complete. It was decided that they should go together on the next day. Levin told his wife he was satisfied that she wished nothing but to be useful, and agreed that Marya Nikolaevna's presence with his brother would not be an impropriety. But at the bottom of his heart he was dissatisfied with himself and with her. He was dissatisfied with her because she would not let him go alone when it was necessary. And how strange it was for him to think that he who, such a short time before, had not dared to believe in the possibility of such joy as her loving him, now felt unhappiness because she loved him too well and he was dissatisfied with himself because he had yielded in such a weak way. In the depths of his heart he was even more dissatisfied to think of the inevitable acquaintance between his wife and his brother's mistress. The thought of seeing his wife, his Kitty, in the same room with this woman, filled him with horror and repulsion. End of chapter 16「Part five, Chapter seventeen of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Marianne Spiegel. The inn where Nikolai Levin was dying was one of those establishments which are found in governmental cities, built on a new and improved model, with the very best regard for neatness, comfort, and even elegance, but which the public frequenting them caused to degenerate with extraordinary rapidity into filthy grog-shops, with pretensions to modern improvements, and by some reason of this very pretentiousness become far worse than old-fashioned inns which are simply filthy. The inn had already reached this condition. The soldier in dirty uniform, 
who served as Swiss, and was smoking a cigarette in the vestibule. The perforated cast-iron staircase, gloomy and unpleasant. The impertinent waiter in dirty black coat. The common hall, with its table decorated with a dusty bouquet of wax flowers. The dirt, dust, and slovenliness everywhere, and at the same time a certain new restlessness and self-sufficiency characteristic of these railway days, Everything about this inn produced a feeling of deep depression in the Levens, after their recent happiness, and especially from the fact that the wretched condition of the inn was wholly irreconcilable with what was waiting for them. As usual, after they had been asked what priced rooms they wanted, it proved that the best rooms were taken, one by the supervisor of the railroad, another by a lawyer from Moscow, the third by Princess Ostavieva from the country. One disorderly bedroom was left for them, with the promise that they should have the one next to it, when evening came. Levin took his wife to it, vexed to find his prognostications so speedily realized, and impatient because when his heart was overwhelmed with emotion at the thought of how he should find his brother, he was obliged to get settled instead of hurrying to his brother. "'Go, go,' said Kitty, with a melancholy look of contrition. He left her without saying a word, and just outside the door he ran against Marya Nikolaevna, who had just heard of his arrival, but had not ventured to knock at his room. She had not changed since he last saw her in Moscow. She wore the same woolen dress, without collar or cuffs, and her pock-marked face expressed the same unfailing good nature. "'Well, how is he? Tell me.' "'Very bad. He doesn't sit up, and he is all the time asking for you. You—' "'She—is your wife with you?' Levin at first did not see why she seemed confused, but she immediately explained herself. "'I am going to the kitchen,' she went on to say. "'He will be glad. He remembers seeing her abroad.' Levin perceived that she meant his wife, and did not know what to say. "'Come,' he said. "'Let us go to him.' But they had not gone a step before the chamber door opened and Kitty appeared. Levin grew red with vexation and mortification to see his wife in such a predicament— but Marya Nikolaevna was still more confused, and crouching back against the wall, ready to cry, she caught the ends of her apron and wound it around her red hands, not knowing what to say or to do. For an instant Levin saw an expression of lively curiosity in the look with which Kitty regarded this terrible creature, so incomprehensible to her. It lasted but a moment. "'Tell me, what is it? How is he?' she asked, turning to her husband, and then to the woman." "'We cannot talk in the corridor,' replied Levin, looking with an expression of annoyance at a gentleman who, with leisurely steps, as if on his own business bent, was coming along the corridor just at this time. "'Well, come into the room, then,' said Kitty, addressing the apologetic Marya Nikolaevna. Then, seeing the look of alarm on her husband's face, she added, "'Or rather go. Go, and send for me,' and she turned back to the room. Levin hastened to his brother. He had never expected to see and experience what he now saw and experienced. He expected to find him in that state of illusion so common to consumptives, and which had so struck him during his visit the preceding autumn. He had expected to find him with the physical indications of approaching death more distinct than before, greater feebleness, greater emaciation, but practically about the same state of things. He expected that he should have the same feeling of pity for this well-beloved brother, and a horror of that presence of death only intensified. He was quite prepared for this, but what he saw was absolutely different. In a little, 
close, dirty, ill-smelling room, the panelled walls of which were covered with red stains of expectoration, separated by a thin partition from another room, where conversation was going on, he saw lying on a wretched bed moved out from the wall a body covered with a counterpane. One hand huge as a rake, and holding in a strange way by the end of a sort of long and slender bobbin, was on the outer side of the counterpane. The head, resting on the pillow, showed the thin hair glued to his temples, and a strained, almost transparent brow. "'Can it be that this horrible body is my brother Nikolai?' thought Levin. But as he came near, he saw his face, and the doubt ceased. In spite of the terrible change that had taken place, it was enough to glance at the lively eyes turned toward him as he entered, or the motions of his mouth under the long moustache, to recognize the frightful truth that this dead body was indeed his living brother. Nikolai's gleaming eyes gazed at his brother with a stern and reproachful look. His look seemed to bring living relations between living beings. Constantine instantly felt the reproach in the eyes fixed on him, and regret for his own happiness. When Constantine took his brother's hand, Nikolai smiled, but the smile was slight, almost imperceptible, and in spite of it the stern expression of his eyes did not change. "'You did not expect to find me so,' said he, with effort. "'Yes.' "'No,' replied Levin, with confusion. "'Why didn't you let me know sooner, before my marriage? I had inquiries made for you everywhere.' He wanted to keep on speaking, so as to avoid a painful silence, but he did not know what to say, the more as his brother looked at him without replying, and seemed to be weighing each one of his words. Finally he told him that his wife had come with him, and Nikolai appeared delighted, adding, however, that he was afraid he should frighten her by his condition. A silence followed. Suddenly Nikolai began to speak, and Levin felt by the expression of his face that he had something of importance to tell him, but he spoke only of his health. He blamed his doctor, and regretted that he could not have consulted a celebrity in Moscow, and Levin perceived that he was still hopeful. Taking advantage of the first moment of silence, Levin got up, wishing to escape for a little while at least from these cruel impressions, and said that he would go and fetch his wife. Good. I will have things put in order here. It is dirty here, and smells bad, I imagine. Masha, you attend to this, said the sick man with effort. Yes. And when you have put things to rights, go away, he added, looking at his brother questioningly. Levin made no reply, but as soon as he had reached the corridor he paused. He had promised to bring his wife, but now, as he recalled what he himself had suffered, he made up his mind to persuade her that she had best not make this visit. Why torment her, as I am tormented? he asked himself. Well, how is it? asked Kitty, with a frightened face. Oh, it is horrible, horrible. Why did you come? Kitty looked timidly, compassionately, at her husband for a few seconds without speaking. Then going to him, she put both hands on his arm. Kostya, take me to him. It will be easier for both of us. Take me, and leave me with him, please. Can't you see that it is far harder for me to see you, and not to see him, Perhaps I shall be useful to him, and to you also. I beg of you, let me go. She besought him as if the happiness of her life depended on it. Levin was obliged to let her go with him, but in his haste he completely forgot all about Marya Nikolaevna. Kitty, 
walking lightly and showing her husband a courageous and sympathetic face, stepped quietly into the sick man's room and shut the door noiselessly. She went with light, quick steps up to the bed, and sat down so that the sick man would not have to turn his head, and with her cool, soft hand she took the dying man's enormous bony hand, pressed it, and, employing that tact peculiar to women of showing sympathy without wounding, she began to speak to him with a gentle cheerfulness. We saw each other at Soden without becoming acquainted. You did not think then that I should ever become your sister. You would not have known me, would you? he said. His face was lighted up with a smile when he saw her come in. Oh, yes, indeed. How good it was of you to send for us. Not a day has passed without Costi speaking of you. He has been very anxious about you. But the sick man's animation lasted only a short time. Kitty had not finished speaking before his face again assumed that expression of stern, reproachful envy which the dying feel for the living. "'I am afraid that you are not very comfortable here,' said she, avoiding the look which he gave her, and examining the room. "'We must ask for another room, and be nearer to him,' she said to her husband. End of chapter 17 Part Five, Chapter Eighteen of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Levin could not bear to look at his brother; could not even be himself and feel at ease in his presence. When he came into the sick man's room, his eyes and his motions entirely absorbed him, and he did not see and did not realize the details of the frightful situation. He perceived the horrid odor he saw the uncleanliness and disorder, he heard the sick man's groans, and it seemed to him that there was no way of helping it. It did not occur to him to investigate how the body lay under the coverlid, how the lean, long legs, the thighs, the back, were doubled up and accommodated. Nor did he ask whether he might not help him lie more easily and do something to improve his condition, at least to make a bad situation less trying. The mere thought of these details made a cold chill run down his back. He was undoubtedly persuaded in his own mind that it was impossible to do anything either to prolong his life or to lighten his sufferings, and the sick man, feeling instinctively that his brother was powerless to help him, was irritated. And this made it all the harder for Levin. To be in the sick room was painful to him, to be away from it was still worse, and he kept leaving the room under various pretexts and coming back again, for he was unable to stay alone by himself. Kitty thought— felt, and acted in an entirely different way. As soon as she saw the sick man she was filled with pity for him, and this pity in her womanly heart, instead of arousing a sense of fear or repulsion, as it did in her husband's case, moved her to act, moved her to find out all the details of his condition, and to ameliorate them. And as she had not the slightest doubt that it was her duty to help him, neither did she doubt the possibility of it, and she set herself to work without delay." The details, the mere thought of which repelled her husband, were the very ones that attracted her attention. She sent for a doctor. She sent to the drug store. She set her own maid and Maria Nikolaevna to sweeping, washing, and dusting, and she even helped them herself. She had all needless articles carried away, and she had them replaced by things that were needed. She went several times to her room, paying no heed to those whom she met on the way, and she unpacked and carried with her sheets, pillowcases, towels, shirts. The waiter who served the table d'hote dinner to the engineers several times came with a surly face when she rang, 
but she gave her orders, and with such gentle authority that he never failed to execute them. Levin did not approve of all this. He did not believe that any advantage would result from it for the sick man. More than all, he was afraid that it would worry his brother. But Nikolai, although he seemed to be indifferent, did not lose his temper, and only felt a little ashamed, and watched with a certain interest everything she did for him. When Levin came back from the doctor's, whither Kitty had sent him, he saw, on opening the door, that under Kitty's directions they were changing the sick man's linen. His long, white back and his stooping shoulders, his prominent ribs and vertebrae, were all uncovered, while Marya Nikolaevna and the lackey were in great perplexity over the sleeves of Nikolai's nightshirt, into which they were vainly striving to get his long, thin arms. Kitty, quickly closing the door behind Levin, did not look at him, but the sick man groaned, and she hastened to him. "'Be quick,' she said. "'There, don't come near me,' muttered the sick man angrily. "'I myself—' "'What do you say?' asked Marya. But Kitty had heard and understood that he was ashamed of being stripped in her presence. "'I am not looking. I am not looking,' she said, trying to get his arm into the nightshirt. "'Marya Nikolaevna, you go to the other side of the bed and help us. Please, go, and get a little flask out of my bag, and bring it to me,' she said to her husband. "'You know, in the side pocket. Please bring it, and in the meantime we will finish arranging him.' When Levin came back with the flask, he found the invalid lying down in bed, and everything about him had assumed a different appearance. The oppressive odor had been exchanged for that of aromatic vinegar, which Kitty, pursing up her lips and puffing out her rosy cheeks, was scattering about from a glass tube. The dust was all gone, a rug was spread under the bed. On the table were arranged the medicine vials, a carafe, the necessary linen, and Kitty's English embroidery. On another table, near the bed, stood a candle, his medicine, and powders. The sick man, bathed, with smoothly brushed hair, was lying between clean sheets, and propped up by several pillows, was dressed in a clean nightshirt, the white collar of which came around his unnaturally thin neck. A new expression of hope shone in his eyes as he looked at Kitty. The doctor whom Levin went for, and found at the club, was not the one who had been treating Nikolai, and had aroused his indignation. The new doctor brought his stethoscope, and carefully sounded the sick man's lungs, shook his head, wrote a prescription, and gave explicit directions first about the application of his remedies, and then about the diet which he wished him to observe. He ordered fresh eggs, raw, or at least scarcely cooked, and seltzer water with milk, heated to a certain temperature. After he was gone, the sick man said a few words to his brother, but Levin heard only the last words, "'Your Katya.' But by the way he looked at Kitty, Levin knew that he had said something in her praise. Then he called Katya, as he had named her. "'I feel much better already,' he said to her. "'With you I should have gotten well long ago. How good everything is!' He took her hand and lifted it to his lips, but as if he feared that it might be unpleasant to her, he hesitated put it down again, and only caressed it. Kitty pressed his hand affectionately between her own. "'Now, turn me over on the left side, and all of you go to bed.' No one heard what he said. Kitty alone understood. She understood because she was ceaselessly on the watch for what he needed. "'Turn him on the other side,' she said to her husband. "'He always sleeps on that side. Is it not pleasant to call the man? I cannot do it. Can you?' she asked of Marya Nikolaevna. "'I am afraid not.' Levin, as terrible as it was to put his arms around this frightful body, to feel what he did not wish to feel under the coverlid, 
submitted to his wife's influence, and assuming that resolute air which she knew so well, and putting in his arms, took hold of him, but in spite of all his strength he was amazed at the strange weight of these emaciated limbs. While he was, with difficulty, changing his brother's position, Nikolai threw his arms around his neck, and Kitty quickly turned the pillows so as to make the bed more comfortable, and carefully arranged his head and his thin hair, which was again sticking to his temples. Nikolai kept one of his brother's hands in his. Levin felt that the sick man was going to do something with his hand and was drawing it toward him. His heart sank within him. Yes, Nikolai put it to his lips and kissed it. Then, shaken with sobs, Levin hurried from the room without being able to utter a word. End of chapter 18「Anna Karenina」by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel He has hidden it from the wise, and revealed it unto children and fools. Thus thought Levin about his wife, as he was talking with her a little while later. He did not mean to compare himself to a wise man in thus quoting the gospel. He did not call himself wise but he could not help feeling that he was more intellectual than his wife and Agafya Mikhailovna, that he employed all the powers of his soul when he thought about death. He knew also that many great and manly minds whose thoughts on the subject he had read had tried to fathom this mystery, but they had not seemed to know one hundredth part as much as his wife and his old nurse. Agafya Mikhailovna, and Katya, as his brother called her, and he also now began to take pleasure in doing, had, in this respect, a perfect sympathy, though otherwise they were entirely opposite. Both unquestionably knew what life meant and what death meant, and though they were, of course, incapable of answering or understanding the questions that presented themselves to Levin's mind, they not only had their own way of explaining these great facts of human existence, but they also shared their belief in this regard with millions of human beings. As a proof of their well-grounded knowledge of what death was, they, without a second of doubt, knew what to do for those who were dying, and felt no fear of them. While Levin and others, who could talk much about death, evidently knew nothing about it because they were afraid of it, and actually had no notion what to do when men were dying. If Constantine Levin had been alone now with his brother Nikolai, he would have gazed with terror into his face, and with growing terror awaited his end with fear, and been able to think of nothing to do for him. What was more, he did not know what to say, how to look, how to walk. To speak of indifferent things seemed unworthy, impossible. To speak of melancholy things, of death, was likewise impossible. To be silent was even worse. If I look at him, he will think I am studying him, I fear. If I do not look at him, he will believe that my thoughts are elsewhere. To walk on tiptoe irritates him. To walk as usual seems brutal." Kitty apparently did not think about herself, and she had not the time. Occupied only with the invalid, she seemed to have a clear idea of what to do, and she succeeded in her endeavor. She related the circumstances of their marriage. She told about herself. She smiled on him. She caressed him. She cited cases of extraordinary cures. And it was all delightful. She understood how to do it. The proof that her activity, Anagafya Mikhailovna's, was not instinctive, was animal, was above reason, lay in the fact that neither of them was satisfied with offering physical solace 
or performing purely material acts, both of them demanded for the dying man something more important than physical care, something above and beyond merely physical conditions. Agafya Mikhailovna, speaking of the old servant who had lately passed away, said, Thank God, he had confession and extreme unction. God grant us all to die likewise. Katya, though she was busy with her care of the linen, the medicines, and the bed-sores, even on the first day succeeded in persuading her brother-in-law to receive the sacrament. When Levin, at the end of the day, returned from the sick-room to their own two rooms, he sat down with bowed head, confused, not knowing what to do, unable to think of eating his supper, of arranging for the night, of doing anything at all. He could not even talk with his wife. He felt ashamed of himself. But Kitty showed extraordinary activity. She had supper brought. She herself unpacked the trunks, helped arrange the beds, and even remembered to scatter Persian powder upon them. She felt the same excitement and quickness of thought which men of genius show on the eve of battle, or at those serious and critical moments in their lives, those moments when, if ever, a man shows his value, and all the preceding days of his life are only the preparation for these moments. The whole work made such rapid progress that before twelve o'clock all their things were neatly and carefully arranged. Their two hotel rooms presented a thoroughly homelike appearance. The beds were remade, the brushes, the combs, the hand-mirrors were taken out, the towels were in order. Levin found it unpardonable in himself to eat, to sleep, even to speak, and he felt that every motion he made was inappropriate. But she took out her toilet articles, and did everything in such a way that there was nothing in the least disturbing or unsuitable in it. Neither of them could eat, however, and they sat long before they could make up their minds to go to bed. I am very glad that I persuaded him to receive extreme unction to-morrow, said Kitty, as she combed her soft, perfumed hair before her mirror, sitting in her dressing-sack. I never saw it given, but Mamma told me that they repeat prayers for restoration to health. Do you believe that he can get well? asked Levin, as he watched the narrow parting at the back of her little round head disappear as she moved the comb forward. I asked the doctor. He says that he cannot live more than three days. But what does he know about it? I am glad that I persuaded him, she said, looking at her husband from behind her hair. All things are possible, she added, with that peculiar, almost crafty expression which came over her face when she spoke about religion. Never, since the conversation that they had had while they were engaged, had they spoken about religion. But Kitty still continued to go to church and to say her prayers with the calm conviction that she was fulfilling a duty. Notwithstanding the confession, which her husband had felt impelled to make, she firmly believed that he was a good Christian, perhaps even better than herself, and that all he had said about it was only one of his absurd masculine freaks, such as he liked to indulge in, just as he did when he jested about her border anglaise, as if good people mended holes, but she purposely created them. There, this woman, Maria Nikolaevna, would never have been able to persuade him, said Levin, and, I must confess that I am very, very glad that you came. You made everything look so neat and comfortable. He took her hand, but did not kiss it. It seemed to him a profanation even to kiss her hand, in the presence of death, but he pressed it, as he looked with contrition into her shining eyes. You would have suffered too terribly all alone, she said, as she raised her arms, which covered the glow of satisfaction that made her cheeks red, and began to coil up her hair and fasten it to the top of her head. No, she would not have known how. But fortunately, I learned many things at Soden. 
Were there people there, as ill as he is? Yes, more so. It is terrible to me not to see him as he used to be when he was young. You can't imagine what a handsome fellow he was, but I did not understand him then. Indeed, indeed, I believe you. I feel that we should have been friends, said she, and she turned toward her husband, frightened at what she had said, and the tears shone in her eyes. Yes, would have been, he said mournfully. He is one of those men of whom you can say with reason that he was not meant for this world. Meanwhile, we must not forget that we have many days ahead of us. It is time to go to bed, said Kitty, consulting her tiny watch. End of chapter 19 Part 5, Chapter 20 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Death On the next morning communion was administered to the sick man. Nikolai prayed fervently during the ceremony. There was such an expression of passionate entreaty and prayer in his great eyes gazing at the sacred image placed on a card-table covered with a colored towel, that it was terrible for Levin to look at him so, for he knew that this passionate entreaty and hope made it all the harder for him to part from life, to which he clung so desperately. He knew his brother and the trend of his thoughts. He knew that his skepticism did not arise from the fact that it was easier for him to live without a religion, but from the fact that gradually his religious beliefs had been supplanted by the theories of modern science, and therefore he knew that his return to faith was not logical or normal, but was ephemeral and due simply to his unreasonable hope for recovery. He knew likewise that Kitty had strengthened this hope by her stories of extraordinary cures. Levin knew all this, and was tormented by these thoughts as he looked at his brother's beseeching, hopeful eyes, as he saw his difficulty in lifting his emaciated hand to touch his yellow forehead to make the sign of the cross, and saw his fleshless shoulders and his hollow rattling chest, unable to contain the life which he was begging to have restored. During the sacrament, Levin did what he had done a thousand times, skeptic that he was. "'Heal this man, if thou dost exist,' he said, addressing God, "'and thou wilt save me also.' The invalid felt suddenly much better after the anointing with the holy oil. For more than an hour he did not cough once. He assured Kitty, as he kissed her hand with smiles and tears of thanksgiving, that he felt well, that he was not suffering, and that he felt a return of strength and appetite. When his broth was brought, he got up by himself and asked for a cutlet. Hopeless as his case was, impossible as his recovery was, as any one might see by a glance, Levin and Kitty spent this hour in a kind of timid joy. "'Is he not better?' "'Much better.' "'It is astonishing.' "'Why should it be astonishing?' "'He is certainly better,' they whispered smiling at each other. The illusion did not last. The sick man went serenely to sleep, but after half an hour his cough wakened him, and instantly those who were with him, and the sick man himself, lost all hope. The actuality of suffering unquestioned made them forget their late hopes. Nikolai, giving no thought to what he had believed a half-hour previously, and apparently ashamed even to remember it, asked for a bottle of iodine to inhale. Levin gave him the bottle, which was covered with a piece of perforated paper, 
and his brother looked at him with the same imploring, passionate look which he had given the image, as if asking him to confirm the words of the doctor, who attributed miraculous virtues to the inhaling of iodine. "'Kitty isn't here,' he asked in his hoarse whisper, when Levin had unwillingly repeated the doctor's words. "'No. Then I may speak. I played the comedy for her sake. She is so sweet. But you and I cannot deceive ourselves.' This is what I put my faith in, said he, pressing the bottle in his bony hands as he smelt the iodine. About eight o'clock in the evening Levin and his wife were taking tea in their room, when Marya Nikolaevna came running toward them all out of breath. She was pale, and her lips trembled. He is dying, she whispered. I am afraid that he is dying. Both of them hurried to Nikolai. He had lifted himself and was sitting up in bed, leaning on his elbow, his head bowed, his long back bent. "'How do you feel?' asked Levin, tenderly, after a moment of silence. "'I feel that I am going,' whispered Nikolai, struggling painfully to speak, but as yet pronouncing the words distinctly. He did not raise his head, but only turned his eyes up, without seeing his brother's face. "'Kadya, go away,' he whispered once again. Levin sprang up, and in an imperative whisper bade her to leave the room. "'I am going,' the dying man whispered once again. "'Why do you think so?' asked Levin, for the sake of saying something. "'Because I am going,' he repeated, as if he had an affection for the phrase. "'It is the end.' Marya Nikolaevna came to him. "'If you would lie down, it will be easier for you,' said she. "'Soon I shall be lying down,' he remarked softly. "'Dead,' he added with angry irony. Well, lay me back, if you will. Levin laid his brother down on his back, took a seat near him, and, hardly able to breathe, gazed into his face. The dying man lay with his eyes shut, but the muscles of his forehead twitched from time to time as if he were in deep thought. Levin involuntarily tried to comprehend what was taking place in him, but in spite of all the efforts of his mind to accompany his brother's thoughts, he saw by the expression of his calm, stern face and the play of the muscles above his eyebrows, that his brother perceived mysteries hidden from him. Yes. Yes. So, the dying man murmured slowly, with long pauses, lay me down. Then long silence followed. So, he said suddenly, with an expression of content, as if all had been explained for him. Oh, Lord, he exclaimed, and he sighed heavily. Marya Nikolaevna felt of his feet. "'They are growing cold,' she said in a low voice. Long, very long, as it seemed to Levin, the sick man remained motionless, but he was still alive, and sighed from time to time. Weary from the mental strain, Levin felt that in spite of all his efforts he could not understand what his brother meant to express by the exclamation, "'So!' He seemed to be far away from the dying man. He could no longer think of the mystery of death. The most incongruous ideas came into his mind. He asked himself what he was going to do. To close his eyes? Dress him? Order the coffin? Strange. He felt perfectly cold and indifferent. He did not experience any sense of grief or loss, or even the least pity for his brother. The principal feeling that he had was one almost of envy for the knowledge which the dying man would soon have, and which he himself could not have. 
Long he waited by his bedside, expecting the end. It did not come. The door opened, and Kitty came in. He got up to stop her, but instantly heard the dying man move. "'Don't go away,' said Nikolai, stretching out his hand. Levin took it, and angrily motioned his wife away. Still holding the dying man's hand, he waited a half-hour, an hour, and still another hour. He ceased to think of death. He thought what Kitty was doing. Who was occupying the next room? Had the doctor a house of his own? Then he became hungry and sleepy. He gently let go the dying man's hand and felt of his feet. His feet and legs were cold, but still Nikolai was breathing. Levin started to go away on his tiptoes, but again the invalid stirred and said, Don't go away. It began to grow light. The situation was unchanged. Levin gently rose, and without looking at his brother went to his room and fell asleep. When he awoke, instead of hearing of his brother's death as he expected, he was told that he had come to his senses again. He was sitting up in bed, was coughing, and wanted something to eat. He became talkative, but ceased to talk about death, and once more began to express the hope of getting well again, and was more irritable and restless than before. No one, not even his brother or Kitty, could calm him. He was angry with them all, and said disagreeable things, and blamed everyone for his suffering, demanded that the famous doctor from Moscow should be sent for, and whenever they asked him how he was, he replied with expressions of anger and reproach. I am suffering terrible, unendurable agony. He suffered more and more, especially from his bed sores, which they were wholly unable to heal, and his irritability kept increasing, and he reproached them all bitterly, especially because they did not fetch the doctor from Moscow. Kitty tried every means in her power to help him, to calm him, but it was all in vain, and Levin saw that she was suffering physically as well as morally, although she would not confess it. The sentiment of death, which had been aroused in all by his farewell to life that night when he had summoned his brother, was mightily weakened. All knew that he would inevitably and speedily reach the end, that he was already half dead. They all felt that the sooner he died the better it would be, yet, concealing this, they still gave him medicines from vials, sent for new medicines and doctors, and they deceived him and themselves and one another. All this was falsehood, vile, humiliating, blasphemous falsehood. And this falsehood was more painful to Constantine than to the others, because he loved his brother more deeply, and because nothing was more contrary to his nature than lack of sincerity. Levin, who had long felt the desire to reconcile his two brothers before Nikolai should die, wrote to Sergey Ivanovitch. He replied, and Constantine read the letter to the sick man. Sergey Ivanovitch could not come, but he asked his brother's pardon in touching terms. Nikolai said nothing. "'What shall I write him?' asked Constantine. "'I hope you are not angry with him.' "'No, not at all,' replied Nikolai, in a tone of vexation. "'Write him to send me the doctor.' Three cruel days passed in this manner, the invalid remaining in the same condition. All those who saw him, the hotel waiter and the landlord, and all the lodgers, and the doctor, and Maria Nikolaevna, and Levin and Kitty, now wished only one thing, and that was his death. The invalid only did not express any such wish, but, on the contrary, 
continually grumbled because they did not send for the doctor, and he took his remedies, and he spoke of life. Only at rare moments, when opium caused him for a little to be oblivious of his incessant agony, he would, in a sort of doze, confess what weighed on his mind even more heavily than the others. Oh, if this could only end, or when this is over. His sufferings, growing ever more and more severe, did their work and prepared him to die. There was no position in which he could find relief. There was not a moment in which he could forget himself. There was not a place or a single member of his body that did not cause him pain, agony. Even the memories, the impressions, and the thoughts about his body now awakened in him the same feeling of repulsion as his body itself. The sight of other people and their talk, their individual recollections, were torment to him. Those who surrounded him felt it and instinctively refrained in his presence from using any freedom of motion, from conversation or expressing their wishes. All his life was concentrated in one feeling, suffering, and in an ardent desire to be freed from it. Evidently there was accomplishing in him that revolution whereby he would be induced to look on death as a consummation of his desires, even as a joy. Hitherto every individual desire called forth by suffering or privation, as by hunger, weariness, thirst, was satisfied by some bodily exercise producing pleasure. But now privation and suffering got no relief, and any attempt at relieving them caused new suffering. And so all his desires were concentrated on one thing, the wish to be delivered from all his woes, and the very source of his woes, from his body. But he had no words to express this thought, and he continued out of habit to ask for what once gave him comfort, but could no longer satisfy him. "'Turn me on the other side,' he would say, and then immediately wished to return to his former position. "'Give me bullion. Take it away. Speak, and don't stay so still.' And as soon as anyone began to speak, he would shut his eyes and show fatigue, indifference, and disgust. On the tenth day after their arrival, Kitty was taken ill. She had a headache and nausea, and all the morning felt unable to get up. The doctor declared that it was caused by her emotions and weariness. He advised quiet and rest. Yet after dinner she got up and went as usual with her work to Nikolai's room. He looked at her sternly and smiled scornfully when she told him that she had been ill. All day long he had never ceased to cough and to groan piteously. "'How do you feel?' she asked. "'Worse,' he replied with difficulty. "'I am in pain.' "'Where do you feel the pain?' all over. "'You will see. The end will come to-day,' said Marya Nikolaevna, in an undertone. Levin hushed her, thinking that his brother, whose ear was very acute, might hear. He turned and looked at him. Nikolai had heard, but the words made no impression. His look remained, as before, reproachful and intense. "'What makes you think so?' asked Levin, when she followed him into the corridor. "'He has begun to pick with his fingers.' "'What do you mean?' "'This way,' she said, plucking at the folds of her woolen dress. Levin himself noticed that all that day the invalid had been plucking at his bedclothes, as if to pick off something. Marya Nikolaevna's prediction came true. Toward evening Nikolai had not strength enough to lift his arms, and his motionless eyes assumed an expression of concentrated attention. Even when his brother and Kitty bent over him in order that he might see them, this look remained unchanged. 
Kitty had the priest summoned to say the prayers for the dying. While the priest was reading the prayer, the dying man gave no sign of life. His eyes were closed. Levin, Kitty, and Marya Nikolaevna were standing by his bedside. Before the prayers were ended, Nikolai stretched himself a little, sighed, and opened his eyes. The priest, having finished the prayer, placed the crucifix on his icy brow, then put it under his stole, and after he had stood for a moment or two longer, silently he touched the huge, bloodless hand. "'It is all over,' he said at last, and started to go away. But suddenly Nikolai's lips trembled slightly, and from the depths of his breast came these words, which sounded distinctly in the silent room. "'Not yet.' soon. A moment later his face brightened, a smile came to his lips, and the women who had been summoned hastened to lay out the body. The sight of his brother and the propinquity of death awakened in Levin's mind that feeling of horror at the inexplicability and the unavoidableness of death, just as he had felt on that autumn night when his brother came to see him. This feeling was now more intense than ever. More than ever he felt his inability to fathom this mystery, and even more terrible seemed to him its proximity. But now, thanks to his wife's presence, this feeling did not lead him to despair, for in spite of his terrors he felt the need of living and loving. He felt that love saved him from despair, and that this love became all the stronger and purer because it was threatened. And scarcely had this mystery of death taken place before his eyes, ere he found himself face to face with another miracle of love and of life equally unfathomable. The doctor confirmed his surmise in regard to Kitty. Her discomfort was the beginning of pregnancy. End of chapter 20 Part 5, Chapter 21 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This slipper-box recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel as soon as Alexey Alexandrovitch had learned from Betsy and Stefan Arkadyevitch that all that was expected of him was that he should leave his wife in peace and not trouble her with his presence, and that his wife herself wished this, he had felt himself in too great perplexity to be able to decide anything for himself, and he did not know what he wanted. But, having placed his fate in the hands of others, who were willing enough to occupy themselves with his affairs, he was ready to accept whatever might be proposed to him. Only when Anna had taken her departure, and when the English governess sent to inquire if she should dine with him or by herself, did he for the first time clearly realize his position, and its full horror. The hardest element in this state of affairs was that he could not coordinate and reconcile his past with the present. Nor was it the past, when he lived happily with his wife, that disturbed him, the transition from that past to the knowledge of his wife's infidelity he had borne like a martyr. That state of things was trying, but it was incomprehensible to him. If at the time when his wife had confessed her wrong to him she had left him, he would have been mortified and unhappy, but he would not have been in that inextricable, incomprehensible position in which he now felt that he was. He could never now reconcile his present position, his reconciliation, his love for his sick wife and the alien child, with the present state of things. In other words, with the fact that, as a reward for all his sacrifices, he was now deserted, disgraced, useful to no one, and a ridiculous laughing-stock to all. 
The first two days after his wife's departure, Alexey Alexandrovitch received petitioners and his chief secretary, attended committee meetings, and ate his meals in the dining-room as usual. Without trying to explain to himself why he did this, he directed all the powers of his mind to one single aim, to seem calm and indifferent. As he answered the questions of the servants in regard to what should be done about Anna's rooms and her things, he made superhuman efforts to assume the manner of a man for whom the event that had occurred was not unexpected, and had nothing in it outside the range of ordinary, everyday events, and he accomplished his purpose. No one would have detected in him any sign of despair. But on the second day after her departure, Cornai handed him a milliner's bill which Anna had neglected to pay, and told him that the manager of the business himself was waiting. Alexey Alexandrovitch had the man shown in. "'Excuse me, Your Excellency,' said the manager, "'for venturing to disturb you. But if you order us to apply to her ladyship personally, you will kindly give us her address?' Alexey Alexandrovitch seemed to the manager to be cognitating. Then, suddenly turning round, he sat down at the table. Dropping his head into his hands, he sat there a long time in that position. He tried several times to speak, but still hesitated. Cornai, understanding his baron's feelings, asked the manager to come another time. When he was left alone again, Alexey Alexandrovitch realized that he no longer had the power to keep up the role of firmness and serenity. He gave orders to send away the carriage which was waiting for him, and he declined to see callers, and would accept no invitations out to dine. He felt that he could not endure the disdain and derision which he clearly read on the face of this manager and of Cornai, and of all without exception whom he had met during these two days. He felt that he could not defend himself from the detestation of people because this detestation did not arise from the fact that he had himself committed any wrong action, for in that case he might have hoped to regain the esteem of the world by improvement in his conduct, but from the fact that he was unhappy, and with an unhappiness that was odious and shameful. He knew that it was precisely for the reason that his heart was torn that they would be pitiless to him. It seemed to him that his fellow men persecuted him as dogs tortured to death some poor cur maimed and howling with pain. He knew that the only safety from men was to conceal his wounds from them, and he had instinctively tried for two days to do so. But now he felt that he no longer had the strength to continue the unequal struggle. His despair was made deeper by the knowledge that he was absolutely alone in his suffering. In all Petersburg there was not one man to whom he could confide all his wretchedness, not one who would have any pity for him now, not as a lofty functionary, or even as a member of society, but simply as a human being in despair. He had no such friend. Alexey Alexandrovitch had lost his mother when he was ten years old. He had no remembrance of his father. He and his one brother were left orphans with a very small inheritance. Their uncle Karenin, a man of influence, held in high esteem by the late emperor, took charge of their bringing up. After a successful course at the gymnasium and the university, Alexey Alexandrovitch, through his uncle's aid, made a brilliant start in official life, and, full of ambition, devoted himself exclusively to his career. He formed no ties of intimacy either in the gymnasium or in the university, or afterward in society. His brother alone was dear to him, but he entered the Department of Foreign Affairs, went abroad to live, and died soon after Alexey Alexandrovitch's marriage. 
while Corinnan was governor of one of the provinces, Anna's aunt, a wealthy lady of the governmental capital, introduced her niece to this governor, who was young for such a position, if not in years, and she forced him to the alternative of proposing marriage or leaving the city. Alexey Alexandrovitch long hesitated. There seemed as many reasons in favor of this step as there were opposed to it. There was no definite reason which should impel him to break his rule, when in doubt, don't. But Anna's aunt sent word to him through a friend that he had compromised the young lady, and that as a man of honor he must offer her his hand. He offered himself, and gave her, first as his betrothed, and afterward as his wife, all the affection which was in his power to show. This attachment prevented him from feeling the need of any other intimacy. And now, out of all the number of his acquaintances, he had not one confidential friend. He had many so-called friends, but no intimates. There were many persons whom Alexey Alexandrovitch could invite to dinner, or ask favors of, in the interest of his public capacity, or protection for some petitioner, with whom he could freely criticize the actions of other people, and of the highest officers of government. But his relations to these people were exclusively confined to this official domain, from which it was impossible to escape. There was one university comrade with whom he had kept up an intimacy in after years, and to whom he would have confided his private sorrows, but his friend was a trustee of the classical educational institutes in a distant province. Of all the people in Petersburg, the nearest and most practicable acquaintances were his director of the chancellery and his doctor. Mikhail Vasilyevich Sludin, manager of affairs, was a simple, good, intelligent, and well-bred man, and he seemed full of sympathy for Karinin, but five years' association in official service put a barrier between them which silenced confidences. Alexey Alexandrovitch, having signed the papers which he brought, sat in silence for some time looking at Sludin, and kept trying, but found it impossible to open his heart to him. The question, "'Have you heard of my misfortune?' was on his lips, but it ended in his saying as usual when he dismissed him, "'You will have the goodness to prepare me this work.' The doctor was another man who was well disposed to him, but between them there had long been a tacit understanding that they were both full of business and in a hurry. Alexey Alexandrovitch did not think at all about his women friends, or even the chiefest among them, the Countess Lydia Ivanovna. Women simply as women were strange and repulsive to him. End of chapter 21Part 5, Chapter 22 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Alexey Alexandrovitch forgot the Countess Lydia Ivanovna, but she did not forget him. She reached his house at his darkest moment of solitary despair, and made her way to his library without waiting to be announced. She found him still sitting in the same position, with his head between his hands. I foresaw la consigne, she said as she came in, with rapid steps, breathless with emotion and agitation. I know all, Alexey Alexandrovitch, my friend— and she pressed his hand between both of hers, and looked at him with her beautiful, melancholy eyes. Alexey Alexandrovitch, with a frown, arose, and, having withdrawn his hand, offered her a chair. "'I beg you to sit down. I am not receiving because I am suffering, Countess,' 
he said, and his lips quivered. "'My friend,' repeated the countess, without taking her eyes from him, and suddenly she lifted her eyebrows so that they formed a triangle on her forehead, and this grimace made her ugly yellow face still uglier than before. Alexey Alexandrovitch felt that she pitied him and was on the point of crying. A wave of feeling overwhelmed him. He seized her fat hand and kissed it. "'My friend,' she said again, in a voice breaking with emotion, "'you must not give yourself up to grief. Your grief is great.' but you must find consolation. I am wounded. I am killed. I am no longer a man, said Alexey Alexandrovitch, letting go the countess's hand, but still looking into her eyes, swimming with tears. My situation is all the more unbearable because I can find neither in myself nor outside of myself any help toward endurance of it. You will find this help, not in me, though I beg you to believe in my friendship, said she, with a sigh. Our help is love, the love which he has given for an inheritance. His yoke is easy, she continued, with the exalted look that Alexey Alexandrovitch knew so well. He will sustain you and will aid you. Although these words were the expression of an emotion aroused by their lofty feelings, as well as the symbolical language characteristic of a new mystical exaltation just introduced into Petersburg, and which seemed extravagant to Alexey Alexandrovitch. Nevertheless, he found it pleasant at the present time to hear them. "'I am weak. I am humiliated. I foresaw nothing of this. And now I cannot understand it.' "'My friend,' repeated Lydia Ivanovna. "'I do not mourn so much my loss,' said Alexey Alexandrovitch. "'But I cannot help a feeling of shame for the situation in which I am placed before the world.' It is bad. And I cannot. I cannot bear it. Is it not you who have performed this noble act of forgiveness which has filled me, and all, with admiration? It is he dwelling in your heart. So, too, you have no cause for shame, said the countess, ecstatically raising her eyes. Alexey Alexandrovitch frowned, and pressing his hands together, he began to make his knuckles crack. "'You must know all the details,' he said in his shrill voice. "'Man's powers are limited, Countess, and I have reached the limit of mine. "'All this day I have wasted in details, domestic details, "'arising,' he accented the word, "'from my new, lonely situation. "'The servants, the governess, the accounts. "'This is a slow fire devouring me, "'and I have not the strength to endure it. "'Yesterday I scarcely was able to get through dinner.' I cannot endure to have my son look at me. He did not ask me any questions, but I know he wanted to ask me, and I could not endure his look. He was afraid to look at me, but that is a mere trifle. Karinin wanted to speak of the bill that had been brought him, but his voice trembled, and he stopped. This bill on blue paper, for a hat and ribbons, was a recollection that made him pity himself. I understand, my friend, said the Countess Lydia Ivanovna, I understand it all. Aid and consolation you will not find in me, but I have come to help you if I can. If I could free you from these petty annoying tasks, I think that a woman's word, a woman's hand are needed. Will you let me help you? Alexey Alexandrovitch was silent and pressed her hand gratefully. We will look after Sir Rosa together. I am not strong in practical affairs, but I can get used to them. "'and I will be your economica, 
Do not thank me. I do not do it of myself. I cannot help being grateful. But, my friend, do not yield to the sentiment of which you spoke a moment ago. How can you be ashamed of what is the highest degree of Christian perfection? He who humbles himself shall be exalted. And you cannot thank me. Thank him. I pray to him for help. In him alone we can find peace, consolation, salvation, and love. She raised her eyes to heaven and began to pray, as Alexey Alexandrovitch could see by her silence. Alexey Alexandrovitch listened to her, and this phraseology, which before seemed not unpleasant to him, but extravagant, now seemed natural and soothing. He did not approve of this new ecstatic mysticism. He was a sincere believer, and religion interested him principally in its relation to politics, and the new doctrine which arrogated to itself certain new terms, for the very reason that it opened the door to controversy and analysis, had aroused his antipathy from principle. Hitherto he had taken a cold, and even hostile, attitude to this new doctrine, and had never discussed it with the countess, who was carried away by it, but had resolutely met her challenge with silence. But now, for the first time, he let her speak without hindrance, and even found a secret pleasure in her words. "'I am very, very grateful to you, both for your words and for your sympathy,' he said when she had ended her prayer. Again the countess pressed her friend's hand with both of hers. "'Now I am going to set to work,' said she, with a smile, wiping away the traces of tears on her face. "'I am going to Sarosa, and I shall not trouble you except in serious difficulties.' And she got up and went out. The Countess Lydia Ivanovna went to Sarosa's room, and, while she bathed the scared little fellow's cheeks with her tears, she told him that his father was a saint and his mother was dead. The Countess fulfilled her promise. She actually took charge of the details of Alexey Alexandrovitch's house, but she exaggerated in no respect when she declared that she was not strong in practical affairs. It was necessary to modify all her arrangements, since it was impossible to carry them out, and they were modified by Cornai. Alexey Alexandrovitch's valet, who, without anyone noticing it, gradually took it on himself to manage the whole establishment, and calmly and discreetly reported to his baron, while the latter was dressing, such things as seemed best. But, nevertheless, the countess's help was to the highest degree useful to him. Her affection and esteem were a moral support to him, and, as it gave her great consolation to think, she almost succeeded in converting him to Christianity, in other words, she changed him from an indifferent and lukewarm believer into a fervent and genuine patrizan of that new method of explaining the Christian doctrine which shortly after came into vogue in Petersburg. It was easy for Alexey Alexandrovitch to put his faith in this exegesis. Alexey Alexandrovitch, as well as the Countess and all those who shared their views, was not gifted with great imagination, or at least that faculty of the mind, by which the illusions of the imagination have sufficient conformity with reality to cause their acceptation. Thus he saw no impossibility or unlikelihood in death existing for unbelievers and not for him. That because he held a complete and unquestioning faith, judged in his own way, his soul was already free from sin, and that even in this world he might look upon his safety as assured. It is true, Alexey Alexandrovitch dimly felt the frivolity, the fallacy of this presentation of his faith. He knew that when, without a thought that his forgiveness of his wife was the act of a higher power, he gave himself up to this immediate feeling, 
he experienced a greater happiness than when, as now, he constantly thought that Christ dwelt in his soul, and that by signing certain papers he was following his will. But it was indispensable for Alexey Alexandrovitch to think so. It was so indispensable to have, in his present humiliation, this elevation, imaginary though it was, from which he, whom everyone despised, could look down on others, that he clung to it as if his salvation depended on it. End of chapter 22part 5 chapter 23 of anna karenina by leo tolstoy translated by nathan haskell doyle this LibriVox recording is in the public domain read by marianne spiegel the countess lydia ivanovna had been married when she was a very young and enthusiastic girl to a very wealthy aristocratic good-natured and dissolute young fellow two months after the wedding her husband deserted her he had replied to her effusive expressions of love with scorn and even hatred, which no one who knew the Count's kindliness, and were not acquainted with the faults of Lydia's romantic nature, could comprehend. Since then, without any formal divorce, they had lived apart, and when the husband met his wife, he always treated her with a venomous scorn, the reason for which it puzzled people to understand. The Countess Lydia Ivanovna had long ago ceased to worship her husband but at no time had she ceased to be in love with some one. Not seldom she was in love with several at once, men and women indiscriminately. She had been in love with almost every one of any prominence. Thus she had lost her heart to each of the new princes and princesses who married into the imperial family. Then she had been in love with a metropolitan, a vicar, and a priest. Then she had been in love with a journalist, three savophiles, and Komazarov, then with a foreign minister, a doctor, an English missionary, and finally Karenin. These multifarious love affairs, and their different phases of warmth or coldness, in no wise hindered her from keeping up the most complicated relations, both with the court and society. But from the day when Karenin was touched by misfortune, she took him under her special protection, from the time when she began to busy herself with his domestic affairs and work for his well-being, she felt that all her former passions were of no account, but that now she loved Karenin alone with perfect sincerity. The feeling which she cherished toward him seemed to her stronger than all the previous feelings. As she analyzed her sentiment and compared it with the former ones, she clearly saw that she would never have been in love with Komazarov if he had not saved the emperor's life, or with Ristich Kuzitsky had there been no Slav question, but Karenin she loved for himself, for his great, unappreciated spirit, for his character, for the delightful sound of his voice. His deliberate intonations, his weary eyes, and his soft white hands with their swollen veins. Not only did the thought of seeing him fill her with joy, but it seemed to her that she saw on her friend's face the signs of the impression which she made on him. She did her best to please him, no less by her person than by her conversation. Never before had she spent so much time and attention on her toilet. More than once she found herself wondering what would happen if she were not married, and he were only free. When he came into the room, she colored with emotion, and she could not restrain a smile of ecstasy if he said something pleasant to her. For several days the countess had been in a state of great excitement. She knew that Anna and Vronsky were back in Petersburg. It was necessary to save Alexey Alexandrovitch from seeing her, 
it was necessary to save him even from the tormenting knowledge that this wretched woman was living in the same town with him, and he might meet her at any instant. Lydia Ivanovna made inquiries through acquaintances so as to discover the plans of these repulsive people, as she called Anna and Vronsky, and she tried to direct all of Karenin's movements so that he might not meet them. The young aide to the emperor, a friend of Vronsky's, from whom she learned about them, and who was hoping through Countess Lydia Ivanovna's influence to get a concession, told her that they were completing their arrangements, and expected to depart on the following day. Lydia Ivanovna was beginning to breathe freely once more, when on the next morning she received a note, the handwriting of which she recognized with terror. It was Anna Karenina's handwriting. The envelope was of paper thick as bark, the oblong sheet of yellow paper was adorned with an immense monogram, the note exhaled a delicious perfume. Who brought it? A messenger from the hotel. The countess waited long before she had the courage to sit down and read it. Her emotion almost brought on an attack of asthma, to which she was subject. At last, when she felt calmer, she opened the following note written in French. Madame la Comtesse, the Christian sentiments filling your heart prompt me, with unpardonable boldness, I fear, to address you. I am unhappy at being separated from my son, and I ask you to do me the favor of letting me see him once more before I depart. If I do not make direct application to Alexey Alexandrovitch, it is because I do not wish to give this generous-hearted man the pain of thinking of me. Knowing your friendship for him, I felt that you would understand me. Will you have Sarosa sent to me here, or do you prefer that I should come at an appointed hour? Or would you let me know how and at what place I could see him? You cannot imagine my desire to see my child again, and consequently you cannot comprehend the extent of my gratefulness for the assistance that you can render me in these circumstances. Anna. Everything about this note exasperated the Countess Lydia Ivanovna. Its tenor, the allusions to Karenin's magnanimity, the especially free and easy tone which pervaded it. Say that there is no reply, said the Countess Lydia Ivanovna, and, hurriedly opening her bouvard, she wrote to Alexey Alexandrovitch that she hoped to meet him about one o'clock at the birthday reception at the palace. I must consult with you in regard to a sad and serious affair. We will decide at the palace when I can see you. The best plan would be at my house, where I will have your tea ready. It is absolutely necessary. He imposes the cross, but he gives also the strength, she added, that she might somewhat prepare him. The Countess Lydia Ivanovna wrote Alexey Alexandrovitch two or three times a day. She liked this way of communication with him, as it had the elegance and mystery which were lacking in ordinary personal intercourse. End of chapter 23